0: U.S. employers added more than a half a million jobs in January, far more than forecasters had expected. The unemployment rate fell to its lowest level in more than half a century. It's Friday, February 3rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, the latest on those encouraging job numbers. Also ahead, in the wake of recent violence, members of Israel's right wing want tougher action against Palestinians.
1: We have an extremely hawkish and religious government in Israel. They might not be interested in calming the situation down.
0: We'll have more on this especially tense period in the long-running conflict. And it's going to be really, really cold tonight. We'll check in with WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce to find out how cold and how long it's going to last. It's 4.01. Now this news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. A Chinese surveillance balloon is drifting eastward in the stratosphere over the U.S. The Pentagon says it's expected to stay over the U.S. for several days, and it has already roiled relations. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was supposed to leave for China today. Instead, he delayed the trip and is still in Washington, where a short time ago, he responded to China's claim that it's just a weather balloon that blew off course.
3: Once we detected the balloon, the U.S. government acted immediately to protect against the collection of sensitive information. We communicated with the PRC government
4: directly."
2: Blinken told his Chinese counterpart that the balloon is a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law. The National Weather Service in Kansas City, Missouri, says several people have spotted it there. The Pentagon says there is no risk now to people on the ground. And the balloon is maneuverable and has changed its course. Stocks ended the day down after a surprisingly strong employment report. The U.S. economy added 517,000 jobs in January. NPR's David Gura reports.
5: The labor market remains very strong, as Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said earlier this week, after the Fed raised interest rates again, this time by a quarter point. 517,000 jobs is almost three times as many as Wall Street expected, and the unemployment rate last month ticked down slightly to 3.4 percent, the lowest it's been since 1969. Wage growth is slowing. It was a volatile day of trading. Wall Street has been optimistic that because inflation is easing, the Fed might be willing to pause its interest rate hikes, but the latest jobs numbers may put pressure on the central bank to do more to slow down the economy to get inflation under control. David Gura. NPR News.
2: Extreme cold is stretching from the upper Midwest into the Northeast. School is out in Boston where a cold emergency is in effect. In Albany, officials are asking people to avoid the outdoors. From member station WAMC, Ian Pickus reports.
6: Temperatures are forecast to drop as low as 15 below zero and high winds will make it feel as cold as 50 below in some areas of upstate New York. New York State Commissioner of Homeland Security and Emergency Services Jackie Bray says if you don't have to go outside don't. It's
7: about 10 minutes before you start to develop frostbite on any uncovered skin when you get to negative 30 and below Uh, and obviously hypothermia is another
8: serious concern of ours.
6: Bray says the state does not expect widespread power outages but urges residents to be careful when using generators and electric heaters. Local warming centers are open before an expected thaw Sunday. For NPR News, I'm Ian Pickus in Albany.
2: Canada and the EU announced new sanctions against Russia today, while the U.S. says it's giving more than $2 billion in additional military assistance to Ukraine. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Well, it's 14 degrees in Boston and blustery right now temperatures are plunging across the region as some of the coldest weather in years settles in public works crews are on standby to repair any major water main breaks that might pop up Somerville's director of water and sewer Demetrios Validas says that the winter his that in the winter his crews are always on alert because of the aging pipes but especially when the weather gets this cold
9: several decades old, some even reaching over 100 years old. And over the years, the thickness of the wall of the pipe starts to deteriorate, causing it to be a little more susceptible.
10: The
0: MBTA is not reporting any major delays. Massport says the weather may cause more flight delays or cancellations at Logan into tomorrow. So far, the tracking website FlightAware reports 114 flights delayed today at Logan, and 58 have been canceled. South Station in Boston will be open tonight and tomorrow night for people to shelter from the cold. In southeastern Massachusetts, the YMCA is opening its facilities in New Bedford, Fall River, Wareham, Dartmouth, and Swansea. They'll offer space again tomorrow morning. In other news, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Worcester reports 93 people have come forward with clergy sexual abuse allegations since the diocese's first review of allegations 20 years ago. The Worcester Diocese says more than half of the credible allegations involve 12 priests. Meanwhile, a report from a Boston-based research and policy center shows declining financial aid is putting Massachusetts public college students deeper into debt. The Hildreth Institute found that 8 in 10 students at state colleges and universities in Massachusetts have $12,000 in unmet financial need each year. And on Beacon Hill, after an eight-week delay, Kristen Kasner of Hamilton was sworn in today as a Massachusetts state representative. It was delayed after former Representative Lenny Mira challenged a recount of last fall's election for that seat. And now for the forecast, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says the cold snap is finally upon us.
7: Well, the Arctic air has arrived, temperatures continue to plummet through the single digits this evening to below zero in many communities, and that's without the wind factored in, which will still gust to 45 miles per hour overnight into early tomorrow, creating those dangerously cold 20 to 30 below zero wind chill values. Some outages will continue to crop up too couple inches of fluffy snow by tomorrow morning in the Outer Cape with some ocean effect. Later tomorrow, the wind eases a bit, which will make a difference. High of 16, wind chill near zero late in the day. Saturday night temperatures in the teens, then warming by Sunday morning for a huge turnaround in the mid-40s Sunday afternoon.
0: And right now it's 13 degrees in Boston.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com.
12: On a Friday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Scott
13: Detrow. We got a report on January's job growth today, and it was a blockbuster. The Labor Department says U.S. employers added more than a half million jobs last month, and that is far more than forecasters had expected. Updated numbers now show that over the last two years, the country has added more than 12 million jobs. President Biden called the report strikingly good news.
14: 12 million more Americans get up every morning knowing they can provide for their families with the dignity and sense of self-worth that had been missing.
13: The surprisingly strong job market is good for workers, but it could make it harder to bring inflation under control. And we will talk about all of this with NPR's Scott Horsley. Hi, Scott. Hi, Scott. So, Scott, forecasters expected to see a modest slowdown in hiring last month, and instead we got this. What is going on?
3: Yeah, it's a bit of a head-scratcher. Uh, many indicators had pointed to a slowdown in economic growth, You know, partly as a result of rising interest rates. We know that consumer spending has cooled in recent months, factory orders are down, and ordinarily you'd think that would lead employers to cut back on hiring. Instead, we got the strongest job gain since last summer, 517,000 jobs added in January. Now, there is a caveat to that. Some of that job gain may not reflect workers being hired last month, but rather fewer people being laid off in January after the busy Christmas shopping season. Uh, Either way, though, there were more people drawing paychecks last month, and economist Sarah House of Wells Fargo says that suggests the job market is still chugging along.
15: We got such a big headline after the seasonal adjustment because businesses are laying off a lot fewer workers than is typical. And I think that reflects that we're still in a very tight jobs market where businesses are reluctant to let go of the workers they do have, considering it is so hard to go out and find new ones.
3: This was also the month when the Labor Department makes its annual revision to the jobs numbers using more complete information from employers' tax records. And that process shows that hiring in 2021 and early 22 was even stronger than initially reported.
13: Wow. So, so then let's get to the next headline, uh, the unemployment rate. It's very low. How much lower could it go at this point?
3: Yeah, the jobless rate's been really low for a long time, and it fell even lower in January, just 3.4%. That's the lowest since 1969. Uh, And for African-Americans last month, the unemployment rate was 5.4%. In five decades of government record keeping, there's only been one month when the African-American unemployment rate was lower than that.
13: Does that mean employers are having to pay workers more?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. Wages are going up, but they were actually going up faster uh, earlier last year. Uh, The annual wage gain in January was actually the smallest since the summer of 2021. So it looks as if wage gains are cooling off. The good news is inflation is cooling off too, and for the last few months, wage gains actually outpaced inflation, so workers' paychecks stretched further. Uh, Workers can buy more now, not less, and that's the opposite of what was happening for much of last year.
13: Mm -hmm. But then the Federal Reserve is saying that it is concerned that wages are rising too fast. Why is that?
3: That's right. Even though wages are not climbing as fast as they were, the Fed thinks they're still climbing fast enough that they could put upward pressure on prices, especially in labor-intensive service industries. And if so, then the Fed might have to push interest rates even higher to get inflation under control. Now, oftentimes, that's the kind of thing that can spook the stock market. But the market did not seem unduly worried by today's jobs report. Uh, so maybe January brought some economic sunshine that's not going to be accompanied by storm clouds on the horizon.
13: And Pierre Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott.
3: You're welcome.
12: Let's head overseas now. The recent violence that's rocked Israel and the West Bank raises the question of whether the new Israeli government is able, or even willing, to calm things down. As NPR's Peter Kenyon reports, there is also a loss of faith in the Palestinian leadership's ability to step up as anger builds on both sides.
4: The current violence is being described as the first big test for the leadership of Israel's still relatively new far-right coalition government. And as far as the right-wing base that elected them is concerned, in order to pass the test, what's needed are more tough measures, including military operations. Some of the comments have been brutally direct.
16: Sure, what you keep killing the terrorists. What? The more terrorist blood, the better. I really like that. Am
4: I supposed to suffer over this? That's Israeli lawmaker al Cohen, a member of a far-right political party speaking to Israel's army radio. Cohen is not part of Israel's security cabinet, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has not used such incendiary language himself, but Cohen's comment reflects the pressure the government is feeling from the right. Netanyahu is currently pushing a package of new security measures, including the power to take away Israeli ID cards from family members of those who commit attacks. I put the question to analyst Reuven Hazan, professor of political science at Hebrew University. Can this government end the violence? He says his answer might surprise some, but he wonders if this government really wants to end it.
1: Yes, we have an extremely hawkish and religious government in Israel, one of the most extreme ones ever, which therefore by definition means that they might not be interested in calming the situation down.
4: Hazan isn't talking about a sharp escalation. That, he says, would benefit no one. But the violence could allow the government to push through some of its hardline agenda while people are focused on security issues.
1: But a certain level of violence that can allow the government to implement some of its more extremely hawkish policies towards the Palestinians might actually play into their hands.
4: In the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Shaya Monday, pedestrians slip into entryways to allow cars to pass in the narrow streets. Talking in small groups are relatives and neighbors of 21-year-old Khari al-Kham, who shot and killed seven people outside a synagogue last week, also wounding three others before being killed himself. Further up the road, Israeli soldiers are preparing to seal up the family home before its expected demolition. Critics call such tactics collective punishment and a violation of international law. 43-year-old Ali al-Kham, Kerry al uncle, says the Israelis can do what they want. It won't deter future actions by young men who he and others call soldiers of God to avenge the killing of Palestinians by Israelis. But while he criticized Israel, he aimed a major part of his condemnation straight at the Palestinian leadership.
17: It did nothing for the people in the West Bank. Did it build a farm for its people? No. Did it build a factory? No. Did it give jobs to the people? Did it give any salaries to the people? No. All they did was create monopolies, in a gangster style.
4: The popularity of Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, also known as Abu Mazen, has plummeted. And Hakam says that's as it should be. But his anger reaches beyond that, not sparing earlier leaders such as Yasser Arafat, known as Abu Ammar. Who is this Abu Mazen?
17: Who is this Abu
4: Amar? Who are they?
5: Islamic Jihad
4: and Hamas can crush them." Those are designated as terrorist organizations by numerous countries, including the United States and Israel. When Secretary of State Antony Blinken left Israel Tuesday without any sign of progress, he left members of his team in the region to continue discussions. But he left many here wondering if things will get worse before they get better. Peter Kenyon, in Pierre News, Jerusalem.
13: The U.S. military continues to monitor what they say is a Chinese surveillance balloon floating high over the country.
18: While we won't get into specifics in regards to the exact location, I can tell you that the balloon continues to move eastward and is currently over the center of the continental United
13: States. That was Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder at a press briefing earlier today. As he pushed back on China's claims, the balloon is simply a meteorological civilian airship gone astray. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more on what the balloon might be up to. If you're feeling
19: confused by these reports of a Chinese spy balloon, you're not alone. This is a little weird. James Flotten works at the University of Minnesota flying research balloons for NASA. He says this balloon does look like it's designed to stay aloft for long periods.
20: One thing you can see in this photograph is that it clearly has solar panels. In other words, this is intended to stay up for a long time and be able to power itself.
19: The Pentagon says it's floating at 60,000 feet. That puts it in the stratosphere. China says it's a meteorological research balloon that's wandered astray, but Flotten thinks it's too fancy for that.
20: That's really all you're interested in weather um, this is not the right kind of balloon to do it you want you want balloons that are way smaller way less expensive and perhaps way more frequent than this sort of thing Flodden
19: says it is possible that this balloon was launched from Chinese soil and drifted thousands of miles to the United States in fact adversaries have sent balloons in the past
20: oddly enough uh, Japan during World War II had a ballooning program and in- Succeeded in getting some incendiary devices delivered by balloons, which landed in the United States. But
19: they didn't do much damage. They were tough to control and came down in random spots, which raises the obvious question. If balloons didn't work 80 years ago, why use them
20: now? Why would somebody bother flying something on a balloon when you have satellites in place, which might have even fancier equipment? In fact, the Pentagon
19: says it believes this spy balloon doesn't significantly improve China's ability to gather intelligence with its satellites.
13: I don't really understand what they're doing here.
19: Jeffrey Lewis is a professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Lewis tracks nuclear weapons, and some have speculated China may be using its balloon to drift over sensitive nuclear missile sites. He's skeptical. These missile bases are decades old, and they're already visible on Google Maps. The location of them is
13: not particularly secret. Their appearance is not particularly secret.
19: Lewis concedes that the Chinese government may be learning a little bit from its spy balloon, but he thinks it's not worth blowing up delicate diplomatic ties with the U.S. That balloon is a floating intelligence failure, and I hope it comes down. Jeff Brumfield, NPR
10: News.
12: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 12 degrees in Boston at 419. Ahead on All Things Considered, this winter's COVID surge appears to be fading without hitting nearly as hard as many had feared. That's ahead in about 15 minutes here on WBUR.
11: WBUR supporters include Leslie University. Inspire future generations with an education degree from Leslie University. Learn more at leslie.edu.
0: On Wall Street, stocks closed the day lower. The Dow down four-tenths of a percent at 33,926. NASDAQ closed down more than 1.5% at 12,007. And the S&P 500 also down about 1% at 4,136. Cambridge-based Magenta Therapeutics is shutting down drug development after the death of a patient. Magenta says it will stop operations and explore strategic alternatives that could mean a merger or sale to another company or the sale of its assets. A patient involved in a clinical trial with the company's drug for acute myeloid leukemia died following respiratory failure and cardiac arrest. It stopped the trial as a result. The company is one of nearly a dozen life sciences companies in Massachusetts that has shut down in the last year. It's 420.
15: We're
21: funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org.
19: Sending Winston Flowers from WBUR supports your source for news. See all our choices and send yours today to save 10%. Visit WBUR.org.
0: It'll be mostly clear, but very cold tonight. Minus 7 is going to be the low, but blustery winds will make it feel like 32 below zero. Sunny with gusty winds again tomorrow. The high's around 16. Again, the wind chill will make it feel colder.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerverly. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands
12: or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
23: And I'm Elsa Chang. This week, we've been bringing you the stories of this year's first time Grammy nominees. And today, we're ending our series right here in Los Angeles with artist Money Long.
24: Mm-hmm. Long
23: is up for three Grammys this weekend, Best New Artist, and Best R&B Performance and Best R&B Song for her track, Hours and Hours.
24: hours. hours. When we
23: met her a few weeks ago in Beverly Hills for a late lunch, a black Mercedes Sprinter van pulled up in front of the Italian restaurant. Out came Money Long's photographer, her glam squad. More and more people kept spilling out of this van. And then there was Money in a plunge black and white mini dress and chunky white shades. Hi. I'm awesome. Hi, really Elsa. Nice to meet, nice you, to meet you. I love your sunglasses. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Her go-to dish here was already waiting for her, wood-grilled chicken and arugula.
24: I assume one of your favorite dishes? Yes. <laughs> Hi, can I just have a Coca-Cola, please? Do you yeah, have Mexican absolutely. Coke? I don't, unfortunately. Okay. Thank can. you. you Wait, did you just say Mexican Coke? There's Mexican Coke in the bottle. Oh. They use real sugar, oh. so it tastes different. You can get that in LA anywhere almost? Yeah, you just have to ask. You have to specifically ask for it. I'm just a girl, you're just a boy.
23: Long just moved to heart. LA 12 years ago, and at that point, she had just dropped her poppy debut album Jukebox, recording under her birth name Priscilla
24: Renee.
23: And then over the next decade, she parlayed her pop hooks into a songwriting career, co writing tracks for artists like Rihanna and Mariah Carey, and this song by Ariana Grande. In
25: 2018,
23: she put out an album of original songs, also as Priscilla Renee, but this time the album had a country soul feel. Her albums never hit big, and the songwriting left her unfulfilled.
24: I never wanted to be a songwriter. Um, I only did it so that I could eat. The way songwriters get treated, the way they get stolen from, the way they get um, abused, really. I had many, many days where I was like, you know, I used to do this thing where I would take out the ice tray from the refrigerator and throw the ice and break it because it, it gives you the same effect of breaking a glass. Before, when, when I was a lesser evolved being, I would literally just, you know, um, just to get out that frustration. I have did that many, many times, like driving through the canyons, driving the PCH, crying with the windows down, like I've done that. And eventually it's like, okay, what else?
23: What else? Well, she said it was time to make a clean break with her old career and reinvent herself as Money
24: Long. I think on the outside looking in, most people see one path, but I see multiple timelines where I've jumped. So like Money Long has always been here. The way that I interpret myself now is this piece of me that was kind of tucked away and hidden for so long finally now gets the stage.
23: Oh, tell me who Money Long
24: is. Like, tell me, how did you pick the name Money Long? So, um, I read a lot and I was studying up on this ancient sage named Mooney, who sat for weeks and reached a state of nirvana and meditation. And I was sharing the story with my husband and he was like, that name is dope, but you should pronounce it Money. Um, and I was like, hmm. And so I adopted the name Money. And then my team was like, Money needs a last name. <laughs> so I'm going through all these, you know, Money Gold, Money Jones, Money, like all these things. And then I heard the two chain song, Hair Long, Money Long. I was like, yes. That's it. Money Long.
26: Boom.
14: Hair Money Long. Yeah. Me and Bro.
26: We'll get along. I, paid
23: for I mean, because, because you've created so music fine. in so many different parts of the industry, I'm wondering like how your vantage point within the industry has changed. Like, how would you compare being a black woman in the pop world versus
24: being a black woman in country versus now being a black woman in r and At one point, I did feel like, you know, I did have people tell me nobody wants to see a brown skin, big butt, big nose, black girl singing pop music, um, R&B will never be pop. I heard all these things, right? But hours and hours blew up in the fourth quarter from a 33-year-old independent black woman in R&B. All things that people said were reasons why it would never work. But it's just about, like, keeping your energy small, meaning protect it, you know, dream big, but don't run around telling everybody your ideas because they'll chip away at it. I could do this for hours and talk to you for hours, I want to give you your flowers and some champagne chows.
23: Oh, hours and Hours. This is of course the one that got two of the three, three Grammy nominations. Um, this song is clearly about being deeply in love, mm-hmm. tell me the story behind it.
24: I thought I was in love many times before but I'm a Virgo and like we <laughs> hate everything and everybody and like. Once I met my husband and like nothing that he does annoys me or gets on my nerves. Really? Except for like, he, killed, How long he, have been he touches my stuff sometimes and <laughs> I don't like that. Uh, <laughs> we've been married for eight years. Um, and I think just like, I've never had intimacy before. Mm-hmm. And so I think everybody deserves at least once in their life to know what that feels like. Um, I think also too, because it came at the end of the first lockdown, and so the song came at a time where people really were not afraid to say, I want to be loved. Oh, so
23: what now then for Money Long? Like, is she gonna stay in the R&B space or is her next record gonna be something way different again.
24: Or has Money Long found her thing? If anything, the success of ours has taught me, like, definitely pay attention to the God whisper and I pay attention to what my supporters are asking me for. I pay attention to what is missing in the marketplace and I try my best to fill that void. So I'll do what's needed. What does money need? As long as I get to keep expressing myself without limitation, that's that's really it.
23: Artist and musician money long, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Mm,
24: thank you. The pleasure's all mine. And I'm glad you got a meal in too. I know, I'm gonna get a box for that <laughs> for that chicken. Don't put your pride in a
12: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll chat with WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce about this cold snap.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by WorkBar, flexible co-working and private offices for individuals and teams in greater Boston. Quincy and Framingham coming soon. WorkBar.com slash WBUR. And JBS Home Inspections. With condo common area inspections as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston. JBSinspections.com
27: I'm Peter Gross, filling in for Peter Sagal on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Last week, Maz Gibrani discovered the real reason there are so many classified documents floating around where there shouldn't be.
0: Classified documents are like party favors at the White House. Just yeah. the- <laughs> Here's a mug, a t-shirt. Oh, don't forget your classified documents. Yeah. Like- <laughs> Join us for the party we're throwing this week with actor,
27: singer, and dancer Billy Porter on this week's news quiz from NPR.
19: Tomorrow at 10
28: a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
25: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Pentagon says it's closely monitoring a Chinese surveillance balloon that's making its way east across the United States. Speaking on CNN, former Defense Secretary Leon Panetta is refuting claims by China that the balloon is a weather research airship.
2: One
26: is that it's a surveillance balloon. So it's doing more than just checking the weather. It's obviously doing uh, surveillance, and that means it's gathering intelligence. The second thing is that it is maneuverable. So it isn't just uh, a balloon that's gone astray. Uh, It's being handled deliberately.
25: The Biden administration says the balloon is flying at about 60,000 feet and has traveled eastward from Montana, which houses an Air Force base that maintains intercontinental missiles. Federal prisons are using solitary confinement more often now than since President Biden issued an order to limit the practice. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports a new study finds more than 11,000 people may be in solitary on any given day. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin says the new findings are, quote, deeply disturbing. He says solitary
12: confinement should be a last resort because it hurts prisoners and public safety. Durbin says he'll introduce a bill to overhaul the practice and do more oversight of prisons this year. The Justice Department says it's committed to reducing the use of restrictive housing. DOJ says the new director of the federal prison system is working to meet the goals of Biden's executive order. Last year, the president vowed to make sure federal prisoners do not endure long stays in solitary confinement.
25: Carrie Johnson, NPR News. Washington. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was down 127 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. If you're driving, the wind is so strong, you might want to keep both hands on the wheel. Whipping winds and plummeting temperatures will be with us into the evening and into early tomorrow. People are trying to avoid the cold any way they can. WBUR's Simone Rios met with some people who are seeking warmth inside the Boston Public Library.
28: Kate Underhill and her daughter Lux came to Boston from Chicago to see Hamilton. Underhill says this kind of cold is the norm back in the Midwest. And she's kind of surprised major cities, including Boston, shut down schools today
15: so i feel like when we went to school they never closed and now i feel like they close all the time at least by us i mean sometimes it's not even cold it's just hey let's just take a e-learning day we have e-learning days so everybody just stays home and learns on the computer for a couple hours
28: boston school officials say they chose not to open because of the risk of frostbite and hypothermia for students many of them walk or have to wait for public transportation outside to get to and from classes for 90.9 wbur I'm Simon Rios in Copley Square.
0: The operators of the New England power grid say they expect the demand for electricity to hit the highest points this winter, today and tomorrow. They also say they will have more than enough power to handle it. The weather is forcing the Steamship Authority to cancel some ferry trips between Hyannis and Nantucket. The authority is warning of a possibility of even more service interruptions if mechanical problems develop with the vessels because of the extreme cold. Bone-chilling temperatures are impacting operations at Wachusett Mountain in central Massachusetts. The ski area will be open this weekend, but it will close at 6 tonight because of the high winds. Wachusett plans to open tomorrow morning and stay open until 9 o'clock tomorrow night. It's 434.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974. In Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com.
0: More now on the forecast. We're expecting an Arctic blast. It's 12 degrees right now in Boston. While it'll be short-lived, it's the type of cold weather that can be dangerous. It's also very windy, and that's making for the frigid air feel even colder. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us now. Danielle, welcome.
7: Hey, Steve. Great to be with you.
0: Uh, So what is causing this big drop in temperatures, and and how cold is it going to get?
7: Oh, Arctic front blasted through New England this morning, and that caused a wind shift out of the northwest. And frankly, it's a little piece, a little chunk of Arctic air that's come straight from, you know, the poles. Uh, it's not going to last long, but like you said, the temperature has been dropping a few degrees each hour, and that will continue through this evening. We enter sub-zero territory. I'm forecasting a low of minus six in Boston tonight. That would break an old record that was actually set back in the late 1800s, believe it or not.
0: Yeah, I saw some white caps on the Charles River coming in today. That that (laughs) wind is making things much worse. Uh, Can you tell us about how long the wind, how how low the wind chills are going to go?
7: So here's the thing, right? The wind is twofold. So number one, you mentioned the wind chill. Wind chill is on exposed skin, skin, right? So if you're bundled up appropriately, you're doing all right. But the wind chill is going to dip to 20 to 30 below zero Mm. later this evening, tonight, until about late morning tomorrow. So that's why we have the wind chill warnings that are in effect the wind is also gusting 40 to 50 miles per hour. That's what adds the chill to the air, but it's been causing some damage, some pockets of isolated outages. I do expect those numbers to climb a little bit through the evening and overnight as well because the wind will still be gusty and howling overnight.
0: How long has it been since we've had temperatures this low?
7: Oh, let's see. Last time we went sub-zero in Boston was back in 2018. We were two below zero, but I'm forecasting a low six below. Last time we did that, uh, was back February 13th and 14th on 2016. So it's been seven years. We were minus four and minus nine uh, those mornings, setting records then. So it's it's certainly been a while. A
0: mm-hmm. uh, wind and cold can sometimes cause ocean effect snow. Uh, is that a possibility mm-hmm.
7: uh, for anyone here? Yeah, definitely. So the Outer Cape, obviously, we're surrounded by ocean on the Cape, right? Outer Cape specifically from like Chatham and Orleans around, you know, Truro, Wellfleet to P-Town may see a fluffy couple of inches tonight. Just because of that temperature difference, right, you've got the relatively warmer ocean water, the Arctic air, and that's going to create some snow that will fall tonight into early tomorrow morning. It'll be really fluffy, easy to move around, but probably about one to three inches in some of those spots.
0: Hmm. With this cold and wind, uh, what are the risks of being out in the the weather and, and what should people be doing to stay safe?
7: So I would say you know in this in this scenario, the biggest issue is frostbite. in in these conditions with wind chills this evening and tonight into tomorrow morning 20 to 30 below zero, that's when frostbite can set in in as little as 15 to 30 minutes. So but like I mentioned before, you know, if you're dressed in layers and you're covered up, that's the key, right? The wind chill doesn't apply to, inanimate objects and it doesn't apply to you know the skin that's not exposed so if you have a ski mask on you know you get the hat the gloves then you're doing okay don't get me wrong it's still cold mm-hmm. but you're preventing you know that frostbite from happening so just make sure you're bundled up appropriately for those that have lost power already or do um trickling the water obviously a big thing uh, in terms of freezing pipes and stuff like that
0: sure sometimes uh, when these cold snaps come through we're, we're plunged into frigid weather for days but that's not the case this time
7: <laughs> Not this time around. We're going to make a, a crazy rebound. In fact, by Sunday uh, in the morning, we'll be rising through the 20s already again. And Sunday afternoon, we're going to go above average for February in the mid 40s. So it's it's really just this one kind of blast that comes in tonight. It's you know, frigid tomorrow, highs will only be in the teens, but then it's a real huge turnaround by the time we get to Sunday. And next week, actually, we'll be in the 40s most of the week.
0: Sounds balmy. Uh, why I is know. this <laughs> such a quick hitter? Why is it, uh, you know, coming in and going out?
7: You know, we've heard of the polar vortex, right? You get the Arctic air up in the poles and sometimes it takes a real big dip down and it's, you know, a stalled out weather pattern and it gets locked across the country. This isn't the case. It's a quick kind of hitting uh, area of the polar vortex, almost like a little piece of it. It's coming down and then when the wind shifts around and the jet stream moves back north, it's going to head right back north. So that's why it's such a quick hitting one this time around.
0: Okay, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce, thanks for joining us and stay warm.
22: Hey, you too. Have a good weekend, Steve. Oh,
0: okay, thanks. And it is 11 degrees now here in Boston.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research.
12: More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
13: And I'm Scott Detrow. with some good news for a change about the pandemic. This winter's COVID-19 surge appears to be fading without hitting nearly as hard as many had feared. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has the story.
9: No one expected this winter surge to be anywhere as awful as the last two, but all the ingredients were there for things to still get pretty nasty. Both the flu and RSV had come roaring back really early this fall. The most contagious Omicron subvariant yet took off just as the holidays arrived, and most people were acting like the pandemic was over, letting all three viruses spread like crazy. So there were big fears of hospitals getting completely overwhelmed again and lots of people getting really sick and dying. But that's not what happened. Michael Ulsterholm studies infectious diseases at the University of Minnesota.
14: This virus continues to
3: throw 210 mile an curveballs at us. People all assumed that we would see major transmission. Well, every time we think that we have some reason
20: to believe we know what it's going to do, it doesn't do that.
9: Hospitalizations and deaths from COVID did increase after New Year's, but soon started falling again and have continued receding now for weeks. The flu and RSV waves continue to fade too, and so the worst looks like it's probably over. Jennifer Nuzzo runs the Pandemic Center at Brown University.
29: I'm glad to say that we didn't have as much of a crush of infections as many thought was possible, which is very much welcome
9: news. The big question is why? Why? Several factors may have played a role. Maybe people were more careful than public health experts had expected, but that doesn't really appear to be the case. Maybe something known as viral interference helped. That's when getting infected with one virus interferes with getting another. So maybe RSV and the flu crowded out COVID in the same way COVID crowded out those viruses the last two years. But many experts think the main reason is all the immunity people have built up from all the infections and vaccinations they've gotten. Dr. Carlos Del Rio from Emory University heads the Infectious Disease Society of America.
14: We have what I would call now a better immunity barrier between vaccinations and prior infection All of us are, if not totally protected, we are somewhat better protected and that immunological wall is real.
9: But none of this means we don't have to worry about COVID anymore. More than 400 people are still dying every day from COVID. That's way better than the thousands who died during the darkest days of the last two winter surges, but it's still pretty awful and far more than die from, say, the flu. William Hanage is an epidemiologist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It's beyond question
19: that society has moved into a stage where the pandemic is, for most of us, if not over, then certainly quiet. And that's a great thing. Long may it remain so. Is it the case that there is no preventable suffering? There is still preventable suffering and death.
9: Most of those dying are the elderly, many of whom have not received the latest booster. So getting them boosted could help a lot. And the rest of us may need yet another booster, too, at some point to help further keep COVID's threat at bay. And it's still possible another wave of flu could hit this year. There's also always the possibility of yet another even more dangerous variant emerging. Rob Stein in Pure News.
12: 2022 was a rough year for investors. Between inflation, falling stock prices, the crypto crash, it was hard to find any safe haven. That had a lot of investors looking at one of the most ancient places to store their money, gold. NPR's Stacey
30: Vanek-Smith reports. Investing in gold has typically been pretty old school for the maverick, maybe slightly anti-establishment investor. But last year, everybody wanted in. Global demand for gold jumped nearly 20 percent. So what I did, I visited a coin store. Julia Grugen is 20. She's a junior at Temple University, majoring in finance. And a few months ago, she made one of her first big investments ever in gold.
31: I went in
11: and it was all men. I was a little, little timid, and I had barrettes in my
30: hair. Grugen quickly realized that 20-year-old women were not the typical gold investor, but She was determined. Grugen had been studying economics and finance, and she just wasn't interested in the investments that her friends were excited about.
11: I know I'm supposed to be hugely into crypto and NFTs, but I am that old school girl.
30: And for gold specifically, I definitely think of it as a value store more than an investment. A value store. A safe haven from inflation, from geopolitical problems, and other things that can erode the value of a country's money. So, Bretts and all, Grugan marched up to the counter at the coin store and placed her order. I said I want a 10-gram bar. 10 grams of gold. The price? About $625. Grugen had the cash in hand. And millions of Americans have been doing the same. Stephen Gleason is the president of Money Metals Exchange, one of the largest gold and silver dealers in the country. He says ever since prices started rising during early lockdown, his business has been nuts.
26: Explosion in demand, you know, five to ten times more order volume than we had been doing. So we ship out 1,000 to 2,000
5: boxes a day around the country. And,
30: Wait, really? Yeah. Leeson says customers tell him the last few years have really shaken their faith in the U.S. dollar and in stocks and in cryptocurrency. But they trust gold. After all, it is one of the oldest investments out there. In fact, a lot of our language about money comes from gold, like the term sound money, which refers to this ancient practice people used to test the purity of gold.
26: You know, bang it on a rock or bang a sword against it or whatever. And and the pure stuff has a, a distinct melodic ring.
30: Although these days, the gold business sounds more like this.
32: We're right here in a little sleepy uh, Eagle, Idaho.
30: Well, it's not that sleepy right now.
32: No, definitely not. A lot of noise.
30: Mike Leeson is Stefan's brother and director of Money Metals Exchange. And he walked me around what will be their new 40,000 square foot headquarters. The new digs will make it one of the biggest precious metal storage facilities in the country. Well,
32: right now we're leveling the uh, the grounds to uh, to go underneath the vaults. So that's what what these uh, bulldozers are do- doing right now is we're really building for the future here.
30: The Gleasons are betting the future is golden. After all, countries like Turkey, China, Russia, and Poland are reportedly buying up huge amounts of gold. They're also worried about inflation. Of course, gold does not have a great track record as an investment. Gold right now is worth roughly the same price it was 12 years ago. Almost any good stock would have been more profitable. But that has not deterred the true believers. Like 20-year-old Julia Grugen, she did, in fact, get her gold in the end. A little bar about the size of a postage stamp, bright yellow. How does it feel (laughs) to hold it? I mean, you feel you feel a little bougie, you feel <laughs> you feel special a little bit. Grugen says her grandfather, a school teacher, invested in stocks and gold and was able to retire very comfortably. In fact, one of the first things she did when she bought her gold piece was text her grandma.
11: I said, please tell Poppy that I just bought my first 10 grams of gold. And she said, Poppy says, wow, all capitals.
30: Awesome. <laughs> Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Ahead on All Things Considered, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has abruptly canceled his high-stakes Beijing trip that was aimed at easing U.S.-China tensions. That's coming up here on WBUR.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC, and Lesley University. Give back to your community with a mental health and wellness degree from Lesley University. Get started at lesley.edu.
0: Start your weekend tomorrow with 90.9 WBUR. We'll have updates on the cold and what's behind the strong unemployment, uh, strong employment numbers. Plus, wait, wait at 10 and something new at 11. Listen when you wake up tomorrow. It'll be mostly clear. Very cold tonight. Minus 7 will be the low, but blustery winds will make it feel like 32 degrees below zero. Hello, this is Simone Rios. I'm a reporter
28: here at WBUR, and this is my daughter, Gabriela. On New Year's Eve, Gabby showed up unexpectedly to my performance in Boston's South End. I'm also a musician, and it was one of my proudest moments as a dad to play music with my daughter. Gabby agreed to get up on stage with me and sing this beautiful Uruguayan song called Inoportuna. On this Valentine's Day, I want to share my story of love and music with our WBUR family. Whether it's with our voices or with a bouquet of roses from Winston Flowers, this is the time when we can express our love for the people closest to us. And if you do choose to send flowers this Valentine's Day, consider sending them from WBUR to support our journalism and lift all our voices. Check out the offerings at WBUR.org.
12: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Dystopia is all around us. Daddy.
26: We don't know. They're
33: saying it's a virus, some kind of parasite. Well, on our screens at least. You know the plotline. Survivors of an earth-shattering catastrophe roam empty cities in search of food or shelter.
3: Where's the rest of us? We're the only ones who made it so far.
33: Or they hatch plans to save the world. Look, I can save you! I can save you! There's probably a zombie nearby.
7: Were you bitten? Did any of the blood get in your mouth? It
33: begs the question, what new is there to say? It's a question that faced the creators of The Last of Us, the wildly popular new HBO show that ticks every single one of the boxes I just mentioned. And it's also a question that NPR's Glenn Weldon and Eric Deggins have been pondering. What makes this dystopian plotline shine? And they are with me now for this week's installment of The Take. Hi,
5: guys. Hey. Hey there.
33: All right, before we get going, just to catch people up on the plot here, no spoilers, please. It is 20 years after a fungus has spread through the population, turning people into zombies, and there's a girl who might hold the key to immunity and she needs to take a journey. There's a grizzled man who begrudgingly agrees to protect her along the way. We were gonna move Ellie out of the zone tonight, but we won't make it anywhere like this, not for a while anyway.
12: So now I'm thinking you're gonna do it. I'm not we going are. with them. Let
9: me take her. Test.
27: We don't have time for this.
12: Oh, you don't have time. Who is she? Do you? She's cargo.
9: We don't. Pretty right straightforward,
33: I've got to Sorry. say. So, what makes this different?
27: Well, what I love about The Last of Us is that it seems to have learned from all the other zombie movies and TV shows that we've had, particularly The Walking Dead. So, one of the things that it does that I think The Walking Dead also does is that the zombies are almost like a natural disaster. They don't focus on the zombies quite that much. They tell you what you need to know about how this fungus works and and why the zombies are the way they are. But once the story gets going, it's much more about the people. And and that is a a really important, uh, I think, element.
5: Yeah, and Juana, you can tell when a show is creating these cardboard characters just to feed them into a sausage grinder, right? To yeah. to be killed or killed by the zombies or mutants or vampires or whatever. And this show, as Eric says, it's really about the human relationships and the communities that are hanging on despite all that. I said when I reviewed the show for NPR that this show is about the zombies In the same way that The Sopranos was about Rico charges, right? (laughs) Which is to say they're real, uh, they're a threat, they're looming over everything, but the show's really about what the characters do despite them.
33: And one of the things that I really found fascinating about the show when I started watching it is the fact that We're now watching this after we've all had this collective experience of the pandemic and where a virus, not unlike in the show, has unexpectedly changed life as we know it. And I was wondering how it was going to hit for me, given the fact that I think a lot of us have a lot of fatigue around that, especially in our entertainment. So for both of you, I wonder... Do you think the timing matters here, or do you think that the fact that we've gone through this collective experience is part of what makes this show so impactful?
5: Well, what's changed is how we approach them, right? Because once upon a time, these shows were science fiction, right? They were horror. They worked purely on a metaphorical level, and we could have all these cozy intellectual debates. Well, I think the zombies represent communism, and I think the zombies represent fascism. But now these shows are not escapist. They're not a theoretical. We can't have the same kind of cool emotional distance we did, which is why I think people are turning to shows like this, which are about human connections. This show was one. Station Eleven last year was another one. There was a show Sweet Tooth, which ditch the grim and gritty nihilism because that no longer feels fun or novel or interesting because why pay a streaming service for grim and gritty when you can look out your dang window in, in favor of something more humane, more generous, more hopeful, really?
27: Well, you know, what I, what I think is interesting about this moment, The Last of Us, the TV show is based on a video game that was created in like 2013 or something. Yeah. So w- well before uh, our current pandemic. And there was an element of that game where the fungus was passed along through spores, which would make it a lot more like what we're going through with coronavirus. And they didn't transfer that to the TV show, which I thought was really interesting. The other thing that strikes me about this, and it's kind of an aside, but... You know, at the end of most virus or zombie TV shows or movies, they find the cure, and that's the end, because it's assumed that people take the cure when it is developed. <laughs> and what we found out in real life is that you can come up with a cure, and people still might not take it. Uh-huh. So, so what is interesting to me about um, The Last of Us, and I, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but there is an ambivalence about finding the cure when you get to the end of this story, that reflects, I think, a little bit about where we are right now.
33: We cannot have a conversation about this show without getting into this week's episode, which I have to confess, I have not had a chance to watch it, so I'm going to ask you not to spoil it for oh, me. Man. <laughs> but from what I have heard and my understanding of this episode, it stands out for a number of the reasons we are talking about here in terms of finding glimmers of humanity. Explain what was so powerful about this week's episode for me.
27: Well, this is the uh, the kind of love story that we don't often see depicted the way that it's depicted in this episode. We are meeting two people who fall in love in the middle of an apocalypse, and that love is special and unique, and we get the full arc of their love story in one episode. Uh, and it connects very importantly to the story of Joel and Ellie, the story that runs all the way through the series. So it's just this potent bit of storytelling that is really, really impactful.
21: Yeah.
5: And if you're just following the social media reaction, and it hit people deeply. I knew this episode was coming. I sat there and watched my social media explode. Uh, and to, to some people, this is it's a deep, heart-wrenching love story. To some people, it's hackneyed and cliched. I think it's neither. I think you see that it starts at a really interesting place where one of these characters is clearly playing the other characters, trying to take advantage of them. It might grow into something real, but it starts from a much more interesting place than a lot of the kind of online reaction has suggested.
33: You know, I saw this episode described elsewhere as a bottle episode, an episode that stands apart in a self-contained setting that's a departure from the expected narrative. And I'm curious for either of you, is this another way in which The Last of Us kind of distinguishes itself from others of the genre by the types of narrative devices it chooses to? Use.
5: Well, Wana, I can tell you have not been swimming in the same backwaters of online TV criticism that I have, <laughs> because uh, TV critics can just get snippy about terminology. And technically, this isn't a bottle episode because it doesn't take the main characters and trap them in a place and have them go at each other. It's a standalone. It really gives us a breather. It shows us how very different people are dealing with this same situation. And it really builds out the world of the show by grounding it in something familiar to us, like long-term relationships. Relationships are tough even in this world where no one is turning into a portobello mushroom at at any given opportunity. In this world where that's happening, the fact that they can survive and thrive is even more hopeful.
27: And, And that's another way that the series feels fresh. In the very next episode, they use that perspective-changing device really, really smartly. So this is something we're going to see again and again sort of pop up as the as the series uh, goes through its uh, episodes.
33: All right. Well, we'll just have to keep comparing notes. That was Eric Deggins, NPR's TV critic, and Glenn Weldon, co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour.
12: Thanks to you both.
5: Thanks for having me. Thank you.
12: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the US, Europe and Asia. Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. From Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAFCPA's Accounting, Audit, Tax, Advisory, and Wealth Management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9
13: WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
30: The presence of this balloon in our airspace, it is a clear violation of our sovereignty as well as international law, and it is unacceptable.
0: A possible surveillance balloon was discovered hovering over the Midwest, and as a result, U.S. Secretary of State is postponing his trip to China. It's Friday, February 3rd. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on WBUR, the latest on Anthony Blinken's decision to postpone his trip to China. Also ahead, millions of people are set to lose Medicaid and some states have already begun to send warning letters. And the Arctic air that has arrived in the Boston area raises the danger for people who are unhoused.
34: I've been physically outside for the last three days since I've been out. But not tonight, though. Tonight, Yeah.
0: We'll look at the difficult question for people experiencing homelessness, where to stay tonight. It's 501 Now This News.
18: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden has been receiving regular briefings on the Chinese surveillance balloon spotted flying over Montana earlier this week. As NPR's Franco Ordonez reports, the White House says the balloon's presence is a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law.
4: President Biden was first advised of the high-altitude surveillance balloon on Tuesday, says White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. She says the balloon does not currently present a military or physical threat to Americans. The White House calls the episode unacceptable, but says the president's military advisors have advised against taking, quote, kinetic action because the risk it would pose to people on the ground. Jean Pierre says the Defense Department is continuing to track the balloon and is keeping all options on the table. She added that Biden agreed with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's
18: decision to cancel a planned trip to China over the episode. Franco, Ordonez, NPR News. The family of a man killed by Minneapolis police in an early morning no knock raid a year ago is suing the city and a SWAT team officer. As Matt Sepik of Minnesota Public Radio reports, Amir Locke was not suspected of any crime.
5: On body camera video, Amir Locke can be seen stirring from under a blanket as police enter the apartment where he was sleeping. Locke has a gun in his hand, but does not fire it. Within nine seconds of entering, an officer fires three shots, killing the 22 year old black man. Locke's mother, Karen Wells, says police we're negligent.
35: You're supposed to know who is on the other side of that door when you're going up in there. There could have been a child in there. My granddaughter could have been in there, sleeping on that couch.
5: The officers had a warrant for evidence in a homicide investigation. After the killing, Mayor Jacob Fry halted the use of no-knock warrants. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sapik in Minneapolis. This
18: winter's COVID-19 surge so far appears to be fading without taking a feared toll. More from NPR's Rob Stein.
9: No one expected this winter's COVID surge would hit as hard as the last two. But with the most infectious Omicron sub taking over, just as the holidays arrived, many feared hospitals could get completely overwhelmed again, especially with the flu and RSV still spreading widely. But that didn't happen. While there was an increase in infections, hospitalizations, and deaths after New Year's, the numbers quickly began to fall and have been declining steadily for weeks now. Experts warn, however, that there could be another flu wave later this year, and more than 400 people are still dying every day from COVID. Rob Stein, NPR News.
18: One of the Federal Reserve's stated missions over the past year has been cooling down inflation, and part of that has been to slow red hot jobs growth. However, that does not appear to be happening. Government reported today the economy added 517,000 jobs in January. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 127 points. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Well, it's 10 degrees in Boston with winds whipping at 25 miles an hour. That means wind chills are below zero and they'll be dropping. It won't start getting warmer until Sunday. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports medical experts are advising people to stay indoors.
32: If you do have to go outside, doctors say dress in layers and cover up every inch of exposed skin. And don't stay out there for long. Dr. Andrew Ayer an emergency physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He says on a cold, windy day like today, frostbite can develop in minutes.
34: The biggest thing to remember is that you need to cover every part of you. People often forget the tip of their nose, the tips of their fingers, their toes, their cheeks. Really, there should be
32: no part of you that is exposed. Hypothermia is also a concern. Signs include extreme shivering and confusion. Ayer reminds people that drinking alcohol will not keep them warm. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard.
0: The MBTA is not reporting any significant delays because of the weather. At Logan Airport, the online flight tracker FlightAware reports more than 100 flight delays and over 50 cancellations. The list of ferry cancellations between Cape Cod and the islands is growing. The Steamship Authority is stopping some trips between Woods Hole and Martha's Vineyard, and the rest of the day's trips between Hyannis and Nantucket. We're starting to see some power outages associated with the gusty winds. Almost 12,000 outages are being reported, mostly in western Massachusetts. The former chairman of the Mashpee Wampanoags is being ordered to pay $209,000 to the tribe after his federal bribery conviction. Cedric Cromwell was convicted of taking money from a company the tribe was working with in an attempt to build a casino. In November, he was sentenced to three years in prison. For people who need to get out of the cold, warming centers will be open for the rest of today and tomorrow at all Boston centers for youth and families. South Station in Boston will also be available tonight and tomorrow night for people to shelter from the cold. In other news, the state revenue collections last month were less than what was expected and below last January's Figures. The Department of Revenue says $3.8 billion was collected in January. Increases in sales tax collections were offset by decreases in withholding and quarterly income tax collections. Well, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says we'll have to endure likely record-breaking coal before we get some relief later this weekend.
7: Temperatures continue to tumble, falling through the single digits this evening into sub zero territory tonight. Forecast low, minus six in Boston overnight would break a record. Wind still gusting to 45 miles per hour results in isolated outages and the dangerously cold wind chill values of 20 to 30 below zero through late morning tomorrow. High of 16 by afternoon. The wind chill still around zero late in the day. Some ocean effect snow showers on the outer cape tonight into tomorrow morning drop a quick couple inches of fluffy snow. Saturday night lows in the teens then a significant turnaround by Sunday, highs in the mid-40s under a blend of sun and clouds.
0: And right now it's 10
16: degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org.
13: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow.
12: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Chase Doak was getting ready to leave his office in Billings, Montana on Wednesday when he looked out the window.
34: And I just spotted this
36: white circle in the sky. It caught my attention because it was still broad daylight and I knew that the stars couldn't be out.
12: He ran outside to his car. He grabbed his camera and his most powerful lens and started snapping photos of that white orb in the sky.
34: What it looked like was a tiny moon that was um, sort of in the middle of an eclipse is the best way I could describe it.
12: Well, that object is believed to be a Chinese surveillance balloon that the Pentagon is now tracking across the U.S. The Chinese government argues it is a weather-related balloon that unexpectedly blew into U.S. airspace. But Billings residents like Doak and Casey Remage have questions and concerns.
34: It's unsettling. Um, It's a little odd to me that it's still apparently up in the air, just kind of cruising over the U.S.,
12: Here to tell us more about the U.S. response to this incident is Michelle Kellerman. Hey, Michelle. Hi there, Mary Louise. Fair to say that the U.S. government and the Chinese government's accounts of what this giant white balloon is doing up there, that these accounts vary significantly?
8: Oh, yeah. I mean, the Chinese say it's a civilian research aircraft that a kind of weather balloon that strayed far off course. And they did express regret over this. But U.S. officials weren't buying that explanation. Take a listen to what Pentagon spokesman, Brigadier General Pat Ryder had to say today.
13: We are aware of the PRC's statement. Um, However, the fact is, uh, we know that it's a surveillance balloon uh, and I'm not going to be able to be more specific than that. Uh, We do know that the
32: balloon has violated U.S. airspace and international law.
8: You know, he says it's carrying a large payload, suggesting that it has some sort of spy equipment aboard. I have to say China watchers have a lot of questions about this, Mary Louise. Some analysts point out that China has much more sophisticated tools to conduct espionage, so it's not clear why they would use this huge balloon. But whatever it is, the U.S. says it's likely to be up there for a couple more days.
12: Huh. Yeah, I mean, it's not exactly covert if people are spotting it from their backyards. And I yeah. suppose we should note there there's a history to this kind of thing, right?
8: Yeah, but the Pentagon says that this one's been up there a lot longer than others. And then there's just the timing of this whole thing. It came just as Secretary of State um, Antony Blinken was going to travel to Beijing. We were, in fact, planning to leave tonight, even had our visas and our bags somewhat packed. But Secretary Blinken uh, said he called um, Wang Yi, a top Chinese official, this morning to say that the U.S. delegation was postponing this trip.
3: I made clear that the presence of this surveillance balloon in U.S. airspace is a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law; that it's an irresponsible act, and that the PRC's decision to take this action on the eve of my planned visit is detrimental to the substantive discussions that we were prepared to have.
8: And the White House, as the president agreed with Blinken's decision to postpone this trip, uh, a spokesman said there was just a,
12: a consensus in the administration about that. I mean, setting aside this particular trip that's been postponed, what are the implications more broadly just for the overall U.S.-China relationship?
8: Well, you know, I mean, the trip was meant to show the world that the U.S. and China, the the world's largest economies, can manage their competition and, as Blinken says, put a floor under relations so they don't sink any further. Um, So you'd think that both sides really would want to keep this visit on track. But clearly Blinken didn't want this split screen TV image of this spy balloon violating US sovereignty while he's there talking to the Chinese. And and his aide said they didn't think that he would be able to get much done with this story dominating the news. But you know, there are just so many things they have to talk about, avoiding conflict over Taiwan, the war in Ukraine, China's relationship with Russia, the list goes on and on. And now you're adding into this mix this kind of Cold War-like spy balloon story. And it's hard to see, you know, how when when a trip like this could get back on track.
12: Yeah. Well, and meanwhile, the spy balloon, (laughs) which (laughs) it's still above U.S. airspace. Give, Give us the forecast for the weekend on this.
8: Yeah, well, the Pentagon says they took steps, first of all, to make sure that it can't collect intelligence. That's what they said at the beginning. They thought about shooting it down but decided that the debris could be dangerous. So at the moment it's floating up there. Officials say it doesn't pose any danger to anyone on the ground. And I just say that, you know, maybe photographers in Kansas should be pulling out their, you know, big cameras right now and taking some pictures okay. and
12: having more sightings. As it floats along. NPR's Michelle Kellerman, Thank you. Thank you.
13: He gets us. That's a tagline that's been popping up in banner ads online, on highway billboards, and soon in Super Bowl commercials. The he is Jesus Christ, and the ads say things like Jesus was a refugee, and Jesus was sick of hypocrisy too. And while it's clear who the marketing campaign is about, the ad's goals and the money behind them are a little bit harder to figure out. We're joined now by Bob Smetana, he's a national reporter for Religion News Service, and he's been looking into this. Hey, Bob. Hey,
14: Scott, how are you today?
13: I'm good. I just want to start with this. I mean, Jesus is a pretty well-known figure in the U.S. What What is the goal for these ads? Who's the audience?
14: Well, the audience is sort of what they call spiritually open skeptics, which are people who might be okay with religion, but aren't really excited about Christians. And so they're trying to really focus people on, Jesus, here's is Jesus and he's great and he's a refugee and he understands you. And I think uh, part of the idea behind the ad is that people have had bad experiences with Christians, especially in the last few years. And so they want to try and get the focus off Christians and back to Jesus.
13: Can you just give us some examples of, of what that could possibly mean? Bad experiences, bad views of
14: Christians. So you could get people who say that they're uh, not accepted their church because they're gay or because they're more politically uh, liberal, right? They may not be accepted because of the race. Or they may have just seen um, a harshness because of over a failing. And we've had lots of follow to churches over abuse. We've had lots of follow you know, in the Catholic Church and more recently in evangelicals, Southern Baptists. And so I think there's been a disappointment. Like, wait, we don't think the way you treat us is what you say you believe you say you love us but we don't feel that love who's behind this this campaign one of the main funders is the green family which are the folks behind hobby lobby but there's a whole bunch of evangelical folks who've kind of joined them there's a group called the signatory which is a kind of a it's a basically a foundation that collects money but they they tried to be pretty discreet about who's funding it. In part, I think they don't want to turn people off or get people focused on them. They really want to keep people focused on Jesus.
13: Mm-hmm. A lot of money behind this push then. I mean, it, it costs an, an incredible amount of money to air an ad on the Super Bowl, doesn't it?
14: It does. It's about these ads would cost, I have two of them, it'll cost them about $20 million. The folks behind the campaign would say, well, you know, major brands uh, spend billion dollars a year in advertising. So, you know, they would say it's small, but it is a it is billion dollars. And I think Spending that much money, again, is a kind of admission on their part that there's a problem and, you know, and there is a problem for organized religion in in America. It's declining, congregations are declining, and these ads, too, are a way to chide their fellow Christians to say, this is what Jesus is like, and maybe we know it, and maybe we're not acting like Jesus. I mean... We live in a world
13: where every single personal choice you make gets grafted onto the political spectrum and people use it to, to make inferences about where you are politically. It's interesting that the that the basic boiled down aspects of the New Testament, loving your neighbor, helping out people who need help, you know, uh, lending in a hand to a stranger can be something that's turned controversial and, and also viewed on that spectrum.
14: Yes, these are interesting things that people think that helping your neighbor or being loving could be suspect. But I think it goes back to the the problem that American evangelicals in particular face is that their political ambitions and their deeply held religious beliefs and ethical beliefs are in conflict Mm -hmm. right now. So the things that will help them win politically will alienate people. So I heard a... um, uh, Recently, I was doing a reporting another story. I heard a mega church pastor. The first half of his sermon was how terrible the liberals are. Mm-hmm. They're going to destroy your life. The first half. And then the second half was about their big evangelism campaign. And I thought, well, you have just told anyone who's not in your church that you don't like them Yeah, and you hate them. They have already heard that. So they might hear your Jesus message. They are not going to be real receptive. If, if you tell people you hate them, they listen. And they leave and they don't come back. And I, the ad campaign may not solve that.
13: Even if it's a billion-dollar ad campaign.
14: Even if it's a billion-dollar ad campaign.
13: That's Bob Smetana. He's a reporter for Religion News Service and the author of Reorganized Religion. Thanks so much for joining us.
12: Oh, thanks so much. Spanish fashion designer Paco Rabanne has died at 88 years old. That's according to his fashion house. As NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports, he was known for his fragrances and space age designs.
37: In the campy 1968 sci fi movie Barbarella, actress Jane Fonda explores another planet wearing groovy knee high boots and sexy futuristic metallic outfits.
4: Barbarella!
26: Barbarella!
37: Taco Raban designed her costume using plastic, chainmail, metal, and leather. The designs were hip in 1960s pop culture and continue to be today. The self taught designer was born Francisco Rabaneda Cuervo in the Basque region of Spain in 1934. His father had been a soldier in the Republic, his mother a couture seamstress for designer Cristobal Balenciaga. Raban studied architecture in France before designing avant-garde clothes and perfumes. He entered the fashion scene in the early 1960s with a collection of experimental dresses made of plastic discs and metal rings that he said were unwearable. His designs quickly became popular with stars and models such as Brigitte Bardot and Twiggy. Filmmakers Jean Luc Godard and John Huston called on him to costume their films too. Raban retired in 1999, but his label was later revived. In a statement, the president of his fashion and fragrance house honored Raban's unique aesthetic and, quote, daring, revolutionary, and provocative vision of the world of fashion. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Nine degrees in Boston at 519. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, WBUR's Simone Rios talks with some people trying to stay warm on this very frigid day and why some people are experiencing homelessness opt against staying in shelters even in the cold. That's ahead here on WBUR.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington. Helping all ages overcome anxiety and OCD with a mix of science and compassion. CBTeam.org.
0: On Wall Street, stocks closed the day lower. The Dow was down four-tenths of a percent at 33,926. NASDAQ closed down more than one and a half percent at 12,007. The S&P 500 also down about one percent at 4136. In other business news, the average price of home heating oil in Massachusetts is fairly stable. The State Department of Energy Resources survey shows prices have dropped by one cent from a week ago to $4.70 a gallon. The price is nearly a dollar more than it was one year ago, however. This is WBUR.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR supports
23: your commitment to curiosity. Order yours now to save 10%. Visit wbur.org.
0: In the forecast, mostly clear. Very cold tonight. Minus 7 will be the low, but blustery winds will make it feel like 32 degrees below zero. Sunny with gusty winds tomorrow. The high about 16. Again, the wind chill will make it feel much colder. Right now, it's 9 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
12: And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
13: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm
12: Mary Louise Kelly. After Memphis police officers fatally beat Tyree Nichols last month, lawmakers are again calling for police reform. I say again because we are now accustomed to a cycle. Deadly police violence being met with calls for congressional action. Calls that go nowhere. Well, yesterday, the Congressional Black Caucus met with President Biden and Vice President Harris to talk about how to make police reform happen Democratic Congressman Stephen Horsford is the chair of the Block Caucus and was in that meeting. He joins me now. Congressman, welcome.
10: Thank you so much for having me.
12: Did you leave that meeting at the White House more hopeful than when you walked in?
10: Absolutely. Uh, I remain hopeful because uh, the lives of the people who have been lost uh, because of bad policing, just cannot continue. I wanna thank President Biden and Vice President Harris for accepting the meeting and making it a priority and my colleagues for joining so that we could have a meaningful conversation and uh, come out in agreement uh, for meaningful uh, action that that will happen uh, over the
12: foreseeable future. You call it a, a meaningful conversation. Can you share whether you got anything of substance?
10: Well, first, what was most important was for us to talk about who Tyree Nichols is. And, you know, the vice president attended his funeral. The president spoke to the family. I had an opportunity to speak to the family. And, and it's important before I talk about anything about legislation, that I talk about the people who are impacted by the pain of what's happening around police brutality. Mm-hmm. Tyree Nichols was a 29-year-old young man who was a son and a father who had potential and purpose and a whole life ahead of him. He loved uh, skateboarding and had a passion for sunsets and uh, photography. In fact, he had just left taking photography of a sunset when he was on his way to his mother's house when he was pulled over, uh, removed from his car, uh, taken, tased, and beaten, and ended up days later dead that is why the Congressional Black caucus both pushed for the meeting with the president as as well as will work tirelessly with anyone and everyone uh, to make sure that we get meaningful reforms passed well and around I so I so appreciate your
12: focusing us on the on the the human being at the center of this because it's so important um, I do want to focus on what meaningful reform would look like and and on what the White House can actually do. I know the White House, after the meeting, said the president, the vice president, they are committed to doing everything in their power on this. But ultimately, it's not really in their power. It's Congress that has to move on this. Do you see limits to what the president can do? Well, it is true that Congress has to
10: act. And I want to thank the president for what he did do in enacting the executive order last May around substantive police reforms to federal law enforcement agencies that he has the authority to enact by executive order. Um, Mm -hmm. But just like we did with the bipartisan safer communities law, the most comprehensive gun safety bill in 30 years, just like the president did with the bipartisan infrastructure and investment uh, law that's producing jobs and investment we need the president to use the power of the presidency and his relationships to help us bring Republicans to the table to act. Why? Because public safety is important to everyone. This is not a partisan issue. We, we recognize we need Republican support for meaningful reforms, and we should all agree that bad policing shouldn't exist anywhere in America And so we should all work towards ending it.
12: Just briefly, Congressman, we got about 30 seconds left. Is there one specific piece that you would like to see accomplished that you think reasonably can be with a Republican-controlled House in the coming months?
10: Well, it's going to take more than just one action. What we need is the tenets of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that is about transparency, accountability, and professional standards. We respect law enforcement and the role they play, Mm -hmm. and we believe that we can both support law enforcement while pushing for an improvement in the culture of policing to keep all of our communities safer.
12: That is Democratic Congressman Stephen Horsford, chair of the Black Caucus. Thank you so much for your time today, sir.
10: Thank you.
13: This spring millions of people could lose health insurance coverage as a pandemic rule for medicaid ends as npr's selena simmons duffin reports the first step in that process began this week
15: medicaid is a lifeline for low-income people across the country it provides health insurance coverage often without any premium costs or co-pays usually states require medicaid recipients to fill out forms every year proving they still qualify but one of the first COVID relief bills allowed people to stay on without filling out any forms. So for three years, new people enrolled, but no one disenrolled. An astounding 91 million people now have coverage through Medicaid or the Children's Health Insurance Program. That's more than one in four Americans. But things are about to change. As a result of the Consolidated Appropriations Act that passed at the end of the
2: year, there's a set timeframe for these provisions to end. So they will expire at the end of March and then individuals could be disenrolled
15: as of April 1st. Robin Rudowitz of the Kaiser Family Foundation explains, February 1st was the day states could start sending out letters to people warning them that they need to reapply to keep their coverage. Some states wasted no time, including Arkansas. We have heard that those are being sent out That. The patients will start receiving letters to let them know that those renewals will be coming. That's Jennifer Perkins. She helps patients with Medicaid applications at First Choice Healthcare, a clinic in Pocahontas, Arkansas. I think initially it's going to be probably a little bit of a panic just because people don't want to lose their coverage that they've had for the last couple of years. They're comfortable with it. But I think once they get in there and realize that there are other options, it'll be OK. Options for people who now make too much money to qualify for Medicaid include employer health plans or insurance you can buy on HealthCare.gov. One concern is that people won't realize they need to fill out these forms to keep Medicaid. So lots of different folks are trying to get the word out with public service announcements, including state health departments. If
17: you receive Medicaid coverage in Idaho, I have some important information to share with you.
15: Nonprofits. This is from North Texas Food Bank. It is so important for you to turn in your renewal packets. We are here to help you even the federal health agency in charge of Medicaid, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Make sure you get your Medicaid renewal letter so you're not left out in the cold. For all these efforts, some estimates suggest things might not go well. A federal analysis estimated 15 million people could lose coverage during this unwinding process. Nearly half could lose coverage because of paperwork problems, even though they're still eligible. Experts like Rudowitz say if you or a loved one receives Medicaid, make sure your mailing address and email and phone are all up to date and keep an eye out for that renewal notice. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News.
12: It's NPR News. We're
16: funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org.
2: Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market.
32: Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner.
2: We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned
25: with the mission of WBUR.
20: For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org.
25: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is touting the latest figures out today from the Labor Department. U.S. employers added 517,000 jobs in the month of January, exceeding expectations. With inflation starting to ease, President Biden was asked whether he bears the blame for months of skyrocketing consumer prices.
14: By taking blame for inflation? No. Right. Why not? because it was already there when I got here, man. Remember what the economy was like when I got here? Jobs were hemorrhaging, inflation was rising, we weren't manufacturing a damn thing here, we were in real economic difficulty, that's why I don't.
25: The nation's unemployment rate fell to 3.4% in January, the lowest in more than 50 years. The Pentagon is announcing its latest round of security support for Ukraine, which includes air defense capabilities and other military equipment. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin reports the U.S. has now spent more than $29 billion to help Ukraine since Russia's full-scale invasion began nearly a year ago.
7: The Biden administration is announcing its 31st drawdown of U.S. military equipment for Ukraine since August 2021. In the latest package, President Biden has authorized $425 million worth of Pentagon security assistance, as well as $1.75 billion from separate Ukraine security assistance initiative funds. Included in the package are air defense capabilities, ammunition for U.S. HIMARS rocket launchers, additional Javelin anti-armor systems, as well as cold weather gear and other equipment. However, Ukraine is still seeking more advanced weaponry, such as the surface-to-surface missiles called Atakums and F-16 fighter aircraft,
25: especially ahead of a potential spring offensive. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was down 127 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The temperature has been dropping a few degrees each hour as Arctic weather settles in. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says conditions are going to worsen tonight.
7: We enter sub-zero territory. I'm forecasting a low of minus 6 in Boston tonight. That would break an old record that was actually set back in the late 1800s, believe it or not.
0: Noy says with wind chills of 20 to 30 below zero overnight, frostbite could set in in as little as 15 to 30 minutes if you are not properly uh, protected. Dog owners are being urged to keep an eye on their pets when they take them outside. Kiko Bracker is the director of critical care at Boston's Angel Animal Medical Center.
26: The signs that uh, one might see are animals who just uncontrollably shake, shiver, they just can't stop that. They often will not be as interactive as normal, kind of hunched up, trying to preserve heat uh, and not animated and playing like you normally would expect outside.
0: Bracker says dog walk should be limited to 15 minutes and pets should not be kept outside overnight. Public works crews are on standby to repair any major water main breaks that might pop up. Somerville's director of water and sewer demetrios v dallas says that in the winter his crews are always on alert because of the aging pipes but especially when the w- weather gets this cold
9: several decades old some even reaching over 100 years old and over the years the thickness of the wall of the pipe starts to deteriorate, causing it to be a little more susceptible.
0: If you're planning to take public transportation, the MBTA is not reporting any major delays. At Logan, the online tracker FlightAware reports more than 100 flight delays and over 50 cancellations. Wachusett Mountain in Central Mass is closing early tonight because of the high winds. The ski area's Chris Stimson is urging anyone who wants to hit the slopes to wear enough protection.
36: We have a uh the the ski buffs in there that you can use to cover your face um, if you really want to get hardcore you can put some vaseline on your face that sort of helps um, but uh, yeah just making sure that all that exposed skin is covered is key
0: stimson says tomorrow wachusett plans to open in the morning and stay open until nine o'clock at night at the region's highest peak mount washington in new hampshire the weather observatory reports the daily record low of 32 degrees below zero was set a few hours ago That was a 60-year-old record. It's 535.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Join artists, educators, and counselors, and turn your potential into a rewarding career. Explore programs at leslie.edu.
0: In sports, the Celtics host the Suns tonight over at the Garden. In the forecast, mostly clear, very cold tonight. Minus 7 will be the low, but blustery winds will make it feel like 32 degrees below zero. Sunny with gusty winds tomorrow, the high of around 16. But again, the wind chill will make it feel much colder. Right now, it's down to 8 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater. Committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From Procter and Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
0: This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Steve Brown. It's freezing outside, and those frigid temperatures continue to drop in the region. That could mean danger for people without shelter. During the day, many folks experiencing homelessness turn to places like the Boston Public Library. But as WBUR's Simone Rios reports, some would rather spend the night outside than go to homeless shelters. At the BPL's
28: Copley Square branch, Pablo Alvarez rolls his cigarettes, charges his cell phone, and drinks coffee the library is offering for free. He says he's been living on the streets since he was released from jail earlier this week. I got into some trouble when I just got out of jail, so... When did you get out of jail?
14: Uh, Three days ago. Right into the streets, breaking
9: the mean
28: streets. Alvarez is 50 and originally from the Midwest. He has no family in Boston. He says he'd rather stay outside, or in a tunnel, under a bridge, or inside an ATM kiosk than go to a homeless shelter. The staff there are often disrespectful, he adds, and he risks getting into a fight with other shelter guests and going back to jail. I asked him if he'd make an exception and stay at a shelter on one of the coldest nights of the year, maybe at the Pine Street Inn, which is the city's largest shelter for people without housing. Alvarez still isn't sure what he's
34: going to do. I've been physically outside for the last three days since I've been out. But not tonight though. Tonight, yeah. I don't stay in shelters, I stay on the street. So I mean if anything, I Pine Street, if I do see Pine Street, it's gonna be here getting a blanket from them and then staying somewhere, or maybe I can run into a friend I know and
24: stay overnight. I don't know.
28: <laughs> Officials at the Pine Street Inn are advising people to secure a spot there as early as possible. But the shelter's director said no one will be turned away at any time. Pine Street Inn plans to send vans to the Copley Square Library for folks who want to stay at the shelter. Lisa Pollock is a spokesperson for the Boston Public Library, which has 26 branches across the city. With many unhoused people expected to seek warmth at the libraries, Pollock says staff geared up this morning to distribute some basic items as well as vital information.
31: All of our locations are
15: open, regular operating hours for anybody who needs to come in. In addition, where we're sitting right now in the new and novel section, it's also been turned into sort of a welcome center with hand warmers, hats, and coffee. For those who are looking to help, um, we do have donation boxes. We are looking for coats and hats and socks.
28: Also at the Copley branch this afternoon was Kimberly Wade, She lost her apartment in 2017 and has been homeless ever since. After the library closes, Wade plans to head over to Back Bay train station and stay there until it closes around midnight. Then she'll figure it out from there. I sleep
24: outside, I do. I sleep outside, I hate it. I hate it, but you know, I mean, I don't know where I'm gonna go tonight. I don't know, I I call my daughter, I could call my daughter, I could call my my ex, but I don't want that, I want my own I do.
28: On Thursday night, Wade says she slept in a tunnel near the library. As for tonight, however, the cold may be enough for her to jump into one of the homeless shelter's vans. But she still hasn't decided. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios.
12: Let's turn now to the backlash the College Board is facing over its new AP course in African-American studies. The College Board oversees the SAT and the AP, the Advanced Placement Program, and this week it released a revised curriculum for the African-American studies class. Critics have said a pilot of the program that launched last year included certain themes, certain authors. They note the updated framework has removed some of them. And the timing of the College Board's press release unveiling the updated framework happened to come after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis threatened to ban the course, saying it was, quote, indoctrinating students. Well, the College Board is defending the changes. And with me now to discuss is College Board CEO David Coleman. Welcome to you. Thank you. And also Senior Director of the AP African-American Studies Program, Brandy Waters. Brandy Waters, welcome to you. Thank you very much. Brandy, I'm going to start with you. I know we've managed to catch you in a car, so we appreciate your taking the time, but people wondering about the noise behind you. That's what's going on. (laughs) Before we get into all the controversy and the back and forth this week, would you back up and just lay out for us, what were the goals? What was the original thinking when you were trying to develop and roll out this new AP course on African-American studies?
29: Sure. This is such a vibrant and interesting field that we looked into creating a new course in African-American studies many, many years ago. Since then, we've found a lot of interest from students and educators who consistently requested a new AP course in this field. And of course, it's really aligned with our mission to create these opportunities for students to take on an in-depth study in an area of their interest. And this is a really great opportunity to also give them a chance to earn college credit and to feel much more prepared to be successful as they pursue this course of study in college as well. So there was a lot of interest around this field and also coming from students and teachers.
12: Okay, so to this week and the political tensions, and David, I'm going to bring you in on this one. As I nodded to, Governor DeSantis threatened to ban the original course. He talked about the political agenda that he thought it was contributing to. The Education Commissioner for Florida spoke of, and I am quoting, woke indoctrination masquerading as education. The criticism came, and then this week, y'all unveiled a changed curriculum. So your critics are suggesting that you have caved to political pressure. Did you?
34: We began the changes that are being discussed in September of the previous year, led by the committee that is developing the course as a committee of faculty. And those changes were largely complete by December. And we have those timestamp materials. Far before the governor spoke up, we'd announced that we were going to release the revised framework on the first day of Black History Month, as we did.
12: So So to just, sorry, just to pause for a minute, because this feels important. You're saying, look, we had a pilot program. We were, you know, looking for feedback. We made some changes and we have paperwork to show we were making those changes before this criticism came in from Florida.
34: There are timestamps. There's clear evidence. So it is simply false that the changes were made after. So just we don't get confused. But I think your most important statement was the idea that authors had been banned, black authors had been banned. This charge of censorship, this perception that authors have been cut out is the one I'd like to address most forcefully today and clear up if you'll give me a minute to do that. Would that sure. be okay? Sure, and
12: just to be clear, I didn't say they were banned. I said some, ha- some that were removed. in the original curriculum are no longer
34: in right. it. That's accurate. A- and I'm saying... No, no, it is not accurate. Let me clarify about the black authors for a moment, because we've got really exciting news to clarify for your listeners what's going on. Because of this confusion that thoughtful authors like Kimberly Crenshaw, for example, on intersectionality, or bell hooks, or other thinkers are somehow no longer represented in the framework, we took out all secondary sources, whether it was by Skip Gates or Evelyn Higginbotham, regardless of their political qualities, but there's a free resource called AP Classroom. And every teacher and student in AP African American Studies is going to have access to it. And we have already bought the permissions for texts like Kimberly Crenshaw's breakthrough piece on mapping the margins on intersectionality. And they're going to be freely available to students and teachers throughout the course. Audre Lorde's poems. Sources that people were worried are gone are actually going to be magnified and made more available than ever in the classroom and teaching resources, which is where secondary sources in AP always are.
12: For the avoidance of doubt, have any authors, any black writers been stricken, banned from the course?
34: No authors have been banned from the course. And in fact, we're going to lift them up and make them freely
29: available. I'd love to also just paint a broader picture of what David is explaining. We've streamlined the framework, as David mentioned, to focus on primary sources. because primary sources based on everyday life is what really opens up students' understanding for bigger concepts and theories. And in order to make sure that they have a deeper opportunity to explore these projects, we've named them in a list of suggested projects, and we've actually provided those secondary sources on AP Classroom. I think our hope is that By providing them on AP Classroom, they'll be able to look to these sources first, where they'll be able to spend much more time on these topics.
12: For people trying to follow all this, let me just put a basic question, a yes or no question, and you can each take it. Was the curriculum changed to appease Governor DeSantis or or other critics who have accused the College Board of being woke? Yes or no? No. Absolutely not. If I may just push you on this one more time, to those who look at the changes and how they track very closely to the changes that Ron DeSantis was arguing for, it's a coincidence?
34: Let me try to explain. What was attacked were secondary sources and all the secondary sources. What was not discussed in all the political commentary was the core facts and evidence of the course. Everyone's in agreement, it seems, that that was brilliantly handled. There were some commentators that were attacked, but those are all part of secondary sources we never list. We took out all the secondary sources, including ones that never got comment, because we don't do it in any AP course, in AP history, AP US history, or AP English. We give a course set of primary sources, like the books you read or art you look at, But we don't list exactly what academics you read and which articles because that would be the college board creating the one list or canon of scholarly work we offered it to the pilot teachers as a support but we never do it when we have an official framework
12: brandy i will give you the last word and i wonder if you would speak directly to students who may be considering taking the course who may in the midst of all this controversy be wondering what they are walking into and and whether they are learning as much as they could. What would you want them to know?
29: Sure, I would tell students, this is the most coherent narrative of African-American history, culture, politics, and legal studies that I've seen for high school students. That this is an exciting opportunity for them to look at over 100 resources, whether it be artworks or data sets, that showcase the diversity of black life and the contributions made not only in in the United States, but also broadly that these students have an opportunity to learn even more than what's been circulated as the very first version of the pilot. So if they have questions about how we are all connected, about how this field was formed, and about where the field is going, this is an exciting course to take to have really great discussions about the larger trajectory of our society today.
12: That is Brandy Waters, Senior Director of AP African American Studies for the College Board speaking with us from a car and the CEO of the College Board David Coleman who was with us as well. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And thanks for listening to All Things Considered here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. It's 7 degrees in Boston at about 12 minutes before 6 o'clock. Ahead on All Things Considered, U.S. employers added more than half a million jobs in January, far more than forecasters had expected. The unemployment rate fell to its lowest level in more than half a century. That's ahead here on WBUR.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com.
0: In the forecast, mostly clear, very cold tonight. It'll be minus 7, but the blustery winds will make it feel like 32 degrees below zero. Sunny with gusty winds tomorrow. The highs will be about 16. Again, the wind chill will make it feel much colder. Right now, it's 7 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
35: I'm WBUR Weekend host Sharon Brody. Let's talk about connections and how great they are. Connections like the love you share with your best friend, your grandparents, your grown-up kid, the person your grown-up kid marries who reminds your grown-up kid to maybe respond to mama's texts. I mean, just to take a for instance. And alongside maintaining connections, another great life activity is subverting the dominant paradigm. So here's an idea. Maybe try a less conventional approach to which people you celebrate this Valentine's Day. You could surprise a loved one with some unexpected recognition. These are the people who make your heart sing. You can send them Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll help us tell stories that keep us all connected. It's really easy to do. Just go to WBUR.org.
12: And thanks.
13: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow.
12: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. History remembers Arthur Burns as the 1970s Fed chair who let inflation run rampant. His name has been invoked recently in the financial press as a cautionary tale.
16: I don't think uh, Jay Powell wants to be the next
20: Arthur Burns. He doesn't want to be Arthur Burns or avoiding being another Arthur Burns.
12: Arthur Burns. Clearly, that's the outcome that current Fed Chair Jerome Powell wants to avoid. Waylon Wong and Darian Woods from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money, look back at the 1970s to figure
31: out what went wrong.
32: Arthur Burns was an Austrian-born pipe-smoking economist.
31: He was also friends with President Richard Nixon. The two men worked together in the Eisenhower administration, and in 1970, Nixon gave Burns a warm welcome as Fed chairman at his swearing-in ceremony.
18: You see, Dr. Burns, that's a standing
26: vote of appreciation in advance for lower interest rates and more money.
32: (laughs) Is that uh, Nixon making a joke about how the Fed should keep interest rates low?
31: Yes, and that wasn't the only joke he made about what he thought his new Fed chair should do.
18: I respect his independence. However, I hope that independently he will conclude that my views are the ones that should be followed.
32: You can see Burns' grimace. You see it in the video. Chris Hughes is a senior fellow at the Institute on Race, Power, and Political Economy at the New School. To be honest, no one today thinks that Arthur Burns was a great leader of... The Fed. But when Arthur Burns first took the job, he came in, and everybody expected him to be an inflation fighter. And Burns hated inflation.
31: And yet the Fed under Burns eased up on rates in the early part of the 1970s when U.S. inflation was already elevated around 5 percent. There are some different theories about why Burns did this. One theory is political pressure from Nixon. And that brings us back to Burns grimacing at the president's joke about Fed independence.
32: The press laughs. Everyone in the room laughs because Nixon's touting the official line of Fed independence, um, but is going to apply political pressure. And Burns knows the guy, and he understands that's going to be a challenge, and it is. But Chris doesn't buy the idea that Burns caved to Nixon. In the absence of other government action, he'd have to raise rates to such a high level, creating a recession, throwing millions out of work, and the guy didn't want to do it. By 1974, inflation was in double digits, and the economy was in a deep recession.
31: Chris says in hindsight, even as an Arthur Burns defender, he can point to certain periods and say "Mm, rates should have been higher. But he also thinks Burns was dealing with a couple of big economic forces that shaped his approach to interest rates.
32: One of those is that the American financial system was in a fragile state. During his tenure, two important companies, including a major bank, ended up collapsing. There's a generalized fear that if the cost of money increases too fast or too high, it's going to cause the financial system to shake, if not even potentially come apart.
31: The other big force was what was actually causing inflation. In the 1970s, there were big shocks coming from the supply side, like the Arab oil embargo of 1973. It wasn't clear that hiking rates, which would primarily affect demand, was the right approach for tackling this kind of inflation. Waylon Wong.
32: Adrian Ma, NPR News.
31: Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management
22: cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world.
13: Often folks dream of traveling to beautiful places once they retire, but what happens if you retire from working in one of the most stunning spots in the U.S., Yosemite National Park? John Reynolds might characterize the location a little bit differently as zip code 95389. He's stepping down after 40 years working with the post office in and around Yosemite, and he joins us now. John, welcome to the show.
26: Thank you very much.
13: I'd ask you about when you started working there, but I understand your connection with Yosemite goes back a little bit further all the way to the day you were born. Is that
26: right? That's correct. I grew up in a little town about 15 miles from where you're speaking to me now in the little town of El-Pertel. It's a place that, uh, until I got the job in the post office, I really took it for granted as far as the iconic views that everybody cherishes so much. And, you know, it was just my backyard. You
13: just thought everybody has such stunning views out the window where they live?
26: But of course, yes. (laughs) I never gave it a second look.
13: (laughs) Your Yosemite National Park posted about your retirement recently and celebrating your years in the park. And there was one comment from McCole McCarthy that caught our attention. We got in touch with her. Here's what she told us.
25: It was the summer of 2007. I was 17 years old and was really feeling the isolation that can come with growing up in such a remote area. So for me, one of the bright spots of that summer was the release of JK Rowling's final installment of the Harry Potter book series. I had pre-ordered the book online and didn't realize that the release and corresponding delivery date of the book was on a Saturday, a day our post office was typically closed for package pickups. So imagine my surprise when I wake up on Saturday morning to a call from John telling me he was opening the post office for a couple of hours so the handful of locals who'd ordered the book could come in and get their copies the same day that everyone else in the U.S. was getting theirs as well.
13: She, She told us that she was so surprised she ran to the post office in her pajamas.
26: Well, um... As much as I would like to praise myself for doing such a good deed, I think it, somewhat it was self serving because I was a big Harry Potter fan myself. <laughs> I think my copy or my children's copy were there too. So ah. I was happy to do that. And, you know, I think that's indicative of living in a place like Yosemite and a small community that we have. You know, somebody gives me a call, they need their package or, John, can you come down and not a problem. I'm happy to do that sort of thing because I think that's the goodwill that we want to promote.
13: Any other ways that being a postmaster around a national park is is different than the typical job? You know, are there black bears that chase you on the route instead of dogs or, you know, anything like that?
26: (laughs) No, nothing, nothing so exciting and adventurous as that. I think, you know, what makes it interesting in a national park, Mother Nature and overcoming and trying to Get mail into the park because people look to the post office and their mail as a normalization when Mother Nature does kick in and you know it it, it, it stresses people out and gives a great anxiety and so the post office and having their mail gives a sense of anchor, a sense of normalcy.
13: Well, so what are you going to do next? Are you going to load up an RV and, and drive east into traffic jams around cities or something?
26: <laughs> what's, what's the plan? Yeah, man, that's, that's exactly what I'm going to do. No, you know, um, the thing that makes me smile the most, I think, is my motorcycle has been winking at me to hop on and to do some road trips that are unencumbered by a time schedule. And also, believe it or not, being born here, I, there's a lot of my backyard, a lot of the trails that I want to see that I haven't seen. And while I'm still standing, unable to walk, I'm going to try to explore some of that backcountry that I've been wanting to do for so many years.
13: Well, John, it sounds like you are going to make the most of your retirement. Thank you so much for talking to us today. really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's John Reynolds, who just retired from his job as postmaster in Yosemite National Park.
12: Well, good luck to Mr. Reynolds, and thanks for listening to All Things Considered.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Proctor and Gamble, maker of VIX Nyquil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms, more at VIX.com. From the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at Lemelson.org. From BetterHelp, Committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com slash public. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. It is 7 degrees in Boston coming up on 6 o'clock as All Things Considered continues. The latest job numbers are in, and they are encouraging. We'll have that story ahead. In the forecast, mostly clear, very cold tonight. Minus 7 will be the low, but blustery winds will make it feel like 32 degrees below zero. It'll be sunny with gusty winds tomorrow. The high is around 16, but again, the wind chill will make it feel much colder.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sung-Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com.
11: I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: U.S. employers added more than a half a million jobs in January, far more than forecasters had expected. The unemployment rate fell to its lowest level in more than half a century. It's Friday, February 3rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, the latest on the encouraging job numbers. Also ahead, in the wake of recent violence, members of Israel's right wing want tougher action against Palestinians.
1: We have an extremely hawkish and religious government in Israel. They might not be interested in calming the situation down.
0: We'll have more on this especially tense period in the long-running conflict. And it's going to be really, really cold tonight. We'll check in with WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes to find out how cold and how long it's going to last. It's 6.01. Now this news.
18: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is postponing his trip to China. That's after the Pentagon spotted a Chinese balloon violating U.S. sovereignty. NPR's Michelle Kellman reports the Chinese claim it's a research aircraft that went astray.
8: Secretary Blinken says he called a top Chinese official to protest what he calls a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and a quote, irresponsible act.
3: And that the PRC's decision to take this action on the even by planned visit is detrimental to the substantive discussions that we were prepared to have.
8: He says countries around the world want to see the U.S. and China manage their competition responsibly, and that's what he wanted to talk about in Beijing. Now, Blinken says the number one job is to get the Chinese spy balloon out of U.S. airspace. China expressed regret over what it says is a stray research balloon, though U.S. officials have dismissed that explanation. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
18: The Treasury Department today says it is making more electric vehicles, including some SUVs, made by Tesla, Ford and General Motors eligible for tax credits of as much as $7,500 under new classification procedures. The revised standards coming on the heels of calls from the major automakers, which have been lobbying the administration to change vehicle definitions to allow higher price vehicles to qualify. Tesla CEO, Elon Musk, met with top aides to President Joe Biden last week to discuss the EV industry. Severe cold weather is stretching from the upper Midwest to the Northeast. Schools out in Boston, where a cold emergency is now in effect. In Albany, officials are asking people to avoid the outdoors. Remember, Station WAMC, Ian Pickus has more.
6: Temperatures are forecast to drop as low as 15 below zero, and high winds will make it feel as cold as 50 below in some areas of upstate New York. New York State Commissioner of Homeland Security and Emergency Services Jackie Bray says if you don't have to go outside, don't.
7: It's about 10 minutes before you start to develop frostbite on any uncovered skin when you get to negative 30 and below, Uh, and obviously hypothermia is another serious concern of ours.
6: Bray says the state does not expect widespread power outages, but urges residents to be careful when using generators and electric heaters. Local warming centers are open before an expected thaw Sunday. For NPR News, I'm Ian Pickus in Albany.
18: U.S. agriculture officials are proposing new nutrition standards for school meals, including the first limits on added sugars. Proposed change would focus on sweetened foods, including cereals, yogurt-flavored milk and breakfast pastries. The plan would also dramatically cut sodium in meals served to the nation's school kids by 2029, while boosting flexibility for foods made with whole grains. Wall Street took a bit of a hit at week's end. The Dow was down 127 points. The Nasdaq fell 193 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Blustery winds tonight will make it feel like 32 below zero. A few thousand power outages are being reported, mostly in western Massachusetts. Eversource spokesman Chris McKinnon says in addition to line crews, system operators are playing a key role in keeping the power on.
36: Through the remote switching capabilities they're able to reroute power to get a lot of those customers brought back on and really reduce uh the the number of customers that are impacted by the physical damage caused by that tree that comes down onto the power lines
0: the operators of the new england power grid say they expect the demand for electricity to hit the highest points this winter during this cold stretch they also say they have more than enough power to handle it the mbta is not reporting any major delays because of the weather At Logan, the online tracker FlightAware reports more than 100 flight delays and over 50 cancellations. The Steamship Authority is stopping some ferry trips between the Cape and the islands. Boston South Station will be open tonight and tomorrow for people to shelter from the cold. In other news, Woburn teachers say they are prepared to negotiate with the city over the weekend. Woburn schools were closed all week after teachers went out on strike on Monday. A delegation of teachers met at the uh, state statehouse lawmakers today looking for support. The teachers attempted to meet with Governor Healy, but a spokesperson for the governor said she was tied up in a meeting. Also from Beacon Hill, after an eight-week delay, Kristen Kasner of Hamilton was sworn in today as a Massachusetts state representative was delayed after former representative Lenny Mira challenged a recount of last fall's election for that seat. Declining financial aid is putting Massachusetts public college students deeper in debt. That's according to the Hildreth Institute, a Boston-based research and policy center dedicated to higher education. Managing Director Bahar Um, Akmin Imboinen says that state-funded financial aid has been cut by 47% over the past two decades in Massachusetts.
2: And this is coupled with the chronic underfunding of higher education, which of course means that we've passed on a lot of the cost of attending public higher education on
9: to students. With rising tuition and fees,
0: the report also found that eight to ten, eight in ten students at state colleges and universities in Massachusetts have $12,000 in unmet financial need each year. Massachusetts Secretary of Education Pat, Patrick Tutwiler says the state is committed to improving financial aid options for college students, especially students of color who are disproportionately burdened by student debt. We have more now on the forecast. We're expecting, experiencing an Arctic blast. It's 7 degrees in Boston right now. While it'll be short-lived, it's the type of cold weather that can be dangerous. It's also very windy, and that's making the frigid air feel even colder. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us now. Danielle, welcome.
7: Hey, Steve. Great to be with you.
0: Uh, so what is causing this big drop in temperatures, and, and how cold is it going to get?
7: Arctic front blasted through New England this morning, and that caused a wind shift out of the northwest. And frankly, it's a little piece, a little chunk of Arctic air that's come straight from, you know, the poles. Uh, It's not going to last long. But like you said, the temperature has been dropping a few degrees each hour, and that will continue through this evening. We enter sub-zero territory. I'm forecasting a low of minus 6 in Boston tonight. That would break an old record. That was actually set back in the late 1800s, believe it or not.
0: Yeah, I saw some white caps on the Charles River coming in today. That that wind is making things much worse. Uh, Can you tell us about how long the wind, how how low the wind chills are going to go?
7: So here's the thing, right? The wind is twofold. So, number one, you mentioned the wind chill. Wind chill is on exposed skin, skin, right? So, if you're bundled up appropriately, you're doing all right. But the wind chill is going to dip to 20 to 30 below zero Mm. later this evening, tonight, until about late morning tomorrow. So, that's why we have the wind chill warnings that are in effect. The wind is also gusting 40 to 50 miles per hour. That's what adds the chill to the air, but it's been causing some damage, some pockets of isolated outages. I do expect those numbers to climb a little bit through the evening and overnight as well because the wind will still be gusty and howling overnight.
0: How long has it been since we've had temperatures this low?
7: Oh, let's see. Last time we went sub-zero in Boston was back in 2018. We were two below zero, but I'm forecasting low six below. Last time we did that, uh, was back February 13th and 14th on 2016. So it's been seven years. We were minus four and minus nine uh, those mornings, setting records then. So it's it's certainly been a while.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, wind and cold can sometimes cause ocean effect snow. Uh, is that a possibility mm-hmm. uh,
7: for anyone here? Yeah, definitely. So the Outer Cape, obviously, we're surrounded by ocean on the Cape, right? Outer Cape specifically from like Chatham and Orleans around, you know, Truro, Wellfleet to P-Town may see a fluffy couple of inches tonight. Just because of that temperature difference, right, you got the relatively warmer ocean water, the Arctic air, and that's going to create some snow that will fall tonight into early tomorrow morning. It'll be really fluffy, easy to move around, but probably about one to three inches in some of those spots.
0: Hmm. With this cold and wind, uh, what are the risks of being out in the the weather and, and what should people be doing to stay safe?
7: So I would say, you know, in this in this scenario, the biggest issue is frostbite. In, in these conditions with wind chills this evening and tonight into tomorrow morning, 20 to 30 below zero, that's when frostbite can set in in as little as 15 to 30 minutes. So, but like I mentioned before, you know, if you're dressed in layers and you're covered up, that's the key, right? The wind chill doesn't apply to inanimate objects and it doesn't apply to you know the skin that's not exposed so if you have a ski mask on you know you get the hat the gloves then you're doing okay don't get me wrong it's still cold but you're preventing you know that frostbite from happening so just make sure you're bundled up appropriately for those that have lost power already or do um trickling the water obviously a big thing uh, in terms of freezing pipes and stuff like that
0: sure sometimes uh, when these cold snaps come through we're, we're plunged into frigid weather for days but that's not the case this time
7: Not this time around. We're going to make a a crazy rebound. In fact, by Sunday uh, in the morning, we'll be rising through the 20s already again. And Sunday afternoon, we're going to go above average for February in the mid 40s. So it's, it's really just this one kind of blast that comes in tonight. It's You know, frigid tomorrow, highs will only be in the teens, but then it's a real huge turnaround by the time we get to Sunday. And next week, actually, we'll be in the 40s most of the week.
0: Sounds balmy. Uh, Why is this (laughs) such a quick hitter? Why is it, uh, you know, coming in and going out?
7: You know, we've heard of the polar vortex, right? You get the Arctic air up in the poles and sometimes it takes a real big dip down and it's, you know, a stalled out weather pattern and it gets locked across the country. This isn't the case. It's a quick kind of hitting uh, area of the polar vortex, almost like a little piece of it that's coming down. And then when the wind shifts around and the jet stream moves back north, it's gonna head right back north.
0: WBUR meteorologist, Danielle Noyes, thank you. It is six degrees in Boston at 611.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at Asylum.News.
12: On a Friday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
13: And I'm Scott Detrow. We got a report on January's job growth today, and it was a blockbuster. The Labor Department says U.S. employers added more than a half million jobs last month, and that is far more than forecasters had expected. Updated numbers now show that over the last two years, the country has added more than 12 million jobs. President Biden called the report strikingly good news.
14: 12 million more Americans get up every morning knowing they can provide for their families with the dignity and sense of self-worth that had been missing.
13: The surprisingly strong job market is good for workers, but it could make it harder to bring inflation under control. And we will talk about all of this with NPR's Scott Horsley. Hi, Scott. Hi, Scott. So, Scott, forecasters expected to see a modest slowdown in hiring last month, and instead we got this. What is going on?
3: Yeah, it's a bit of a head-scratcher. Uh, many indicators had pointed to a, a slowdown in economic growth, You know, partly as a result of rising interest rates. We know that consumer spending has cooled in recent months. Factory orders are down. And ordinarily, you'd think that would lead employers to cut back on hiring. Instead, we got the strongest job gain since last summer, 517,000 jobs added in January. Now, there is a caveat to that. Some of that job gain may not reflect workers being hired last month, but rather fewer people being laid off in January after the busy Christmas shopping season. Uh, Either way, though, there were more people drawing paychecks last month, and economist Sarah House of Wells Fargo says that suggests the job market is still chugging along.
15: We got such a big headline after the seasonal adjustment because businesses are laying off a lot fewer workers than is typical. And I think that reflects that we're still in a very tight jobs market where businesses are reluctant to let go of the workers they do have, considering it is so hard to go out and find new ones.
3: This was also the month when the labor department makes its annual revision to the jobs numbers using more complete information from employers tax records and that process shows that hiring in 2021 and early 22 was even stronger than initially reported
13: wow so so then let's get to the next headline uh, the unemployment rate it's very low how much lower could it go at this point
3: yeah the jobless rate's been really low for a long time and it fell even lower in january just 3.4 percent That's the lowest since 1969. Uh, And for African Americans last month, the unemployment rate was 5.4%. In five decades of government record keeping, there's only been one month when the African American unemployment rate was lower than that.
13: Does that mean employers are having to pay workers more?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. Wages are going up, but they were actually going up faster uh, earlier last year. Uh, The annual wage gain in January was actually the smallest since the summer of 2021. So it looks as if wage gains are cooling off. The good news is inflation is cooling off too, and for the last few months, wage gains actually outpaced inflation, so workers' paychecks stretched further. Uh, Workers can buy more now, not less, and that's the opposite of what was happening for much of last year.
13: Mm -hmm. But then the Federal Reserve is saying that it is concerned that wages are rising too fast. Why is that?
3: That's right. Even though wages are not climbing as fast as they were, the Fed thinks they're still climbing fast enough that they could put upward pressure on prices, especially in labor-intensive service industries. And if so, then the Fed might have to push interest rates even higher to get inflation under control. Now, oftentimes, that's the kind of thing that can spook the stock market but the market did not seem unduly worried by today's jobs report. Uh, So maybe January brought some economic sunshine that's not gonna be accompanied by storm clouds on the horizon.
13: NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott.
3: You're welcome.
12: Let's head overseas now. The recent violence that's rocked Israel and the West Bank raises the question of whether the new Israeli government is able, or even willing, to calm things down. As NPR's Peter Kenyon reports, there is also a loss of faith in the Palestinian leadership's ability to step up as anger builds on both sides.
4: The current violence is being described as the first big test for the leadership of Israel's still relatively new far-right coalition government. And as far as the right-wing base that elected them is concerned, in order to pass the test, what's needed are more tough measures, including military operations. Some of the comments have been brutally direct.
16: Keep killing the terrorists. What? The more terrorist blood,
4: the better. I really like that. Am I supposed to suffer over this? That's Israeli lawmaker Almog Cohen, a member of a far-right political party speaking to Israel's army radio. Cohen is not part of Israel's security cabinet, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has not used such incendiary language himself, but Cohen's comment reflects the pressure the government is feeling from the right. Netanyahu is currently pushing a package of new security measures, including the power to take away Israeli ID cards from family members of those who commit attacks. I put the question to analyst Reuven Hazan, professor of political science at Hebrew University. Can this government end the violence? He says his answer might surprise some, but he wonders if this government really wants to end it.
1: Yes, we have an extremely hawkish and religious government in Israel, one of the most extreme ones ever, which therefore by definition means that they might not be interested in calming the situation down.
4: Hazan isn't talking about a sharp escalation. That, he says, would benefit no one. But the violence could allow the government to push through some of its hardline agenda while people are focused on security issues.
1: But a certain level of violence that can allow the government to implement some of its more extremely hawkish policies towards the Palestinians might actually play into their hands.
4: In the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Shaya Monday, pedestrians slip into entryways to allow cars to pass in the narrow streets. Talking in small groups are relatives and neighbors of 21-year-old Khari Al-Kham, who shot and killed seven people outside a synagogue last week, also wounding three others before being killed himself. Further up the road, Israeli soldiers are preparing to seal up the family home before its expected demolition. Critics call such tactics collective punishment and a violation of international law. 43-year-old Ali al-Kham, Kerry al-Kham's uncle, says the Israelis can do what they want. It won't deter future actions by young men who he and others call soldiers of God to avenge the killing of Palestinians by Israelis. But while he criticized Israel, he aimed a major part of his condemnation straight at the Palestinian leadership. It did nothing for the people in the West
17: Bank. Did it build a farm for its people? No. Did it build a factory? No. Did it give jobs to the people? Did it give any salaries to the people?
4: No. All
17: they did was create monopolies,
4: in a gangster style. The popularity of Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, also known as Abu Mazen, has plummeted. And Hakam says that's as it should be. But his anger reaches beyond that, not sparing earlier leaders such as Yasser Arafat, known as Abu Ammar.
17: Who is this Abu Mazen? Who is this Abu Ammar? Who are
4: they? Islamic Jihad and Hamas can crush them." Those are designated as terrorist organizations by numerous countries, including the United States and Israel. When Secretary of State Antony Blinken left Israel Tuesday without any sign of progress, he left members of his team in the region to continue discussions. But he left many here wondering if things will get worse before they get better. Peter Kenyon, in Pierre News, Jerusalem.
13: The U.S. military continues to monitor what they say is a Chinese surveillance balloon floating high over the country. While we won't get into specifics in regards to the exact location, I can tell you that the balloon continues to move eastward and is
0: currently over the center of the continental United States.
13: That was Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder at a press briefing earlier today. As he pushed back on China's claims, the balloon is simply a meteorological civilian airship gone astray. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more on what the balloon might be up to.
19: If you're feeling confused by these reports of a Chinese spy balloon, you're not alone. This is a little weird. James Flotten works at the University of Minnesota flying research balloons for NASA. He says this balloon does look like it's designed to stay aloft for long periods.
20: One thing you can see in this photograph is that it clearly has solar panels. In other words, this is intended to stay up for a long time and be able to power itself. The Pentagon says it's
19: floating at 60,000 feet. That puts it in the stratosphere. China says it's a meteorological research balloon that's wandered astray, but Flotten thinks it's too fancy for that.
20: That's really all you're interested in weather um, this is not the right kind of balloon to do it you want you want balloons that are way smaller way less expensive and perhaps way more frequent than this sort of thing
19: Flodden says it is possible that this balloon was launched from Chinese soil and drifted thousands of miles to the United States in fact adversaries have sent balloons in the past
20: oddly enough uh, Japan during World War II had a ballooning program and Succeeded in getting some incendiary devices delivered by balloons, which landed in the United States.
19: But they didn't do much damage. They were tough to control and came down in random spots, which raises the obvious question. If balloons didn't work 80 years ago, why use them now?
20: Why would somebody bother flying something on a balloon when you have satellites in place, which might have even fancier equipment? In fact, the Pentagon says it believes this spy balloon doesn't
19: significantly improve China's ability to gather intelligence with its satellites. I don't
13: really understand what they're doing here.
19: Jeffrey Lewis is a professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Lewis tracks nuclear weapons, and some have speculated China may be using its balloon to drift over sensitive nuclear missile sites. He's skeptical. These missile bases are decades old, and they're already visible on Google Maps. The location of them is not particularly secret. Their appearance is not particularly secret. Lewis concedes that the Chinese government may be learning a little bit from its spy balloon, but he thinks it's not not worth blowing up delicate diplomatic ties with the U.S. That balloon is a floating intelligence failure, and I hope it comes down. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News.
12: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, it was 20 years ago when then-U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell warned the U.N. about Iraq's so-called weapons of mass destruction. Powell's speech is since remembered as a profound intelligence failure. That's ahead here on WBUR.
11: WBUR supporters include Leslie University. Inspire future generations with an education degree from Leslie University. Learn more at leslie.edu.
0: On Wall Street, stocks closed the day lower. The Dow was down four-tenths of a percent at 33,926. NASDAQ closed down more than one-and-a-half percent at 12,007, and the S&P 500 was also down about one percent. At 4136. In other business news, Cambridge based Magenta Therapeutics is shutting down drug development after the death of a patient. Magenta says it will stop operations and explore strategic alternatives. That could mean a merger or a sale to another company or the sale of its assets. A patient involved in a clinical trial with the company's drug for acute myeloid uh, leukemia died following respiratory failure and cardiac arrest. It stopped the trial as a result. The company is one of nearly a dozen life sciences companies in Massachusetts that has shut down in the last
10: year.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and new museums at night events, harvardartmuseums.org.
30: Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org slash cars.
0: It's six degrees in Boston at 625.
11: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington. Traditional as well as accelerated cognitive behavioral therapy for kids and adults with OCD and anxiety. CBteam.org.
13: Sunday marks 20 years since Secretary of State Colin Powell made his case for the Iraq war to the United Nations. On February 5, 2003, Powell put his credibility on the line and laid out detail after detail about Iraq's weapons program and the threat it posed to the world. Of course, the Iraqi weapons he described, they didn't exist. NPR's Jack Mitchell takes us back. U.S. Secretary of State Colin
36: Powell is seated in front of members of the U.N. Security Council.
18: My colleagues... Every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources.
36: There's an American flag pin on his lapel and stacks of paper on the table in front of him.
18: These are not assertions. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence.
36: Up until this moment, Powell has been a staunch critic of U.S. intervention against Iraq's authoritarian leader, Saddam Hussein. But now, with the world watching, he's making a case for war.
18: Saddam Hussein has chemical weapons. Saddam Hussein has used such weapons and Saddam Hussein has no compunction about using them again against his neighbors and against his own people. Powell
36: uses information that U.S. intelligence officials assure him is rock solid. And during his speech, he keeps using this one term. Weapons of mass destruction. 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 He speaks for over an hour and uses the phrase, weapons of mass destruction, a total of 17 times. Weapons of mass destruction. This was the phrase the Bush administration kept using to help justify an invasion of Iraq.
18: Weapons of mass destruction. Vietnam's weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of
36: mass destruction. A month and a half after the UN speech, President Bush orders airstrikes over Baghdad. American forces quickly topple Hussein's regime, but Iraq's so-called weapons of mass destruction are nowhere to be found. And Americans start asking questions. He said it was based on solid evidence, and now we know that it just wasn't true.
21: I'm as surprised as you that there are no stockpiles of weapons. It's
9: kind of embarrassing they haven't found anything. It's almost like they were salesmen and they had a thing to sell.
36: Journalists and members of Congress start digging into the rationale for war laid out in Powell's U.N. speech, and they discover faulty and exaggerated reports from an intelligence community under political pressure, from top White House officials. There are claims that Bush took advantage of Powell's reputation. Journalist and Powell biographer Karen DeYoung talked to NPR in 2006.
12: As Bush said to him at the time, maybe they'll believe you, maybe the audience will believe you, because it was always clear in the Bush administration that Powell was more popular than anyone else.
36: The war in Iraq dragged on for almost nine years and claimed nearly 4,500 American lives. Over 185,000 Iraqi civilians were killed, according to the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. To this day, the war in Iraq is widely viewed as a foreign policy and humanitarian disaster. Powell later called his UN speech a great intelligence failure, telling NBC's Meet the Press in 2004 he trusted the information he'd gotten.
18: But it turned out that the sourcing uh, was inaccurate and uh, wrong, and in some cases, deliberately misleading. And for that, I I am disappointed and I regret it.
36: Colin Powell's U.N. speech on Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, 20 years ago Sunday. Jack Mitchell, NPR News.
12: And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBURN, org. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown. Six degrees in Boston at 629. Marketplace is coming up next. The forecast, it'll be mostly clear, very cold tonight. Minus 7 will be the low, but blustery winds will make it feel like 32 degrees below zero. Sunny with gusty winds tomorrow, the high around 16, but again, the wind chill will make it feel much colder. Quite the change on Sunday, mostly cloudy and breezy. The highs will be around 46 degrees. Again, right now, it's 6 degrees in Boston.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning.